My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a husband, father of four, psychotherapist, and outdoorsman building fierce and comprehensive men. Please welcome, from Primal Virtues, Jonathan Rios. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men. You are the renaissance. When I was in the New Age, we had a term that was thrown around a lot, and for good reason. Spiritual bypassing. It describes what someone does when they're confronted with real-deal life stuff and can't handle it. They retreat to spiritualized language like, it's all good, or love and light appealing to a, quote, higher spiritual principle. It often helps someone avoid the tough decisions they need to make or the challenging realities they need to confront. But it has a numbing effect, both on the individual doing it and the conversation. And therein lies the problem. It's a cope. It solves nothing. It papers over the real issue with just enough truth to be passable. Now, here's the thing. Not just New Age people do it. Christians do it, too. We've just come out of Reformation May, where I interviewed five influential men in the Reformed Christian faith, which is its own theological world. All of these men are grounded, broad-perspective individuals who have showed results in their lives, so they're not the example of the principle I'm talking about. However, within the Reformed faith specifically, I have observed a similar trend for people, both men and women, to avoid confronting hard realities of their lives by retreating into abstract theological discussions. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a good soteriological, exegetical, or eschatological debate as much as the next man. But perhaps you can hear how, in those three big words, it's easy to spend hours unpacking scripture proofs and historical church debates and ignore the fact that, bro, you need to get into the gym. Sis, you gotta work out that bitterness you have towards men. Guys, our churches and our country are on fire. Pride flags are hanging from the White House, preborn babies are dying by the thousands every day, and your bold, unapologetic presence is needed in the public square. So yeah, we can debate the millennium and infant baptism, and let's do that. But at a certain point, and listen to me closely here, your theology has to touch the ground. And by that I mean it needs to land in your body, your life, past, present, and future, your workplace and finances, and also in your emotions which is to say, your heart. Yes, be on fire for the Lord, but also be on fire for your life, the one that the Lord gave you. You've read the word, but do you digest it? Does it fuel you? Are you pursuing more than holiness, but wholeness? These are important questions, and spiritual bypassing provides a convenient, Christian, culturally acceptable way to avoid them. Your soul might be saved, but when floodwaters rise, metaphorically or otherwise, Lives will need saving too. The more grounded, rooted, and strong you are, man or woman, the more you can be relied upon to lift up others who'll need it. 
which is why it's vital that we as Christian men and women begin stripping away the veneer of Gnostic spiritual bypassing and confront the hard questions of earthly life with wise, skillful, and effective answers. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is John Rios, and he's a psychotherapist, outdoorsman, former Division I collegiate athlete, and a leader of men. He's also a Christian, one of the most faithful and real men I know. It seems to me that his faith doesn't float up in the air like a cloud. It's more like the trunk of a tree. It's not a philosophical abstraction he toys with, but a core support he stands upon. Or better, he holds it like a shield he carries in front of him rather than a wall he hides behind. And he carries that shield into the lives and hearts of men in the therapist's office, the jiu-jitsu mats, up mountains and on beaches, and in forests, America, and abroad, crafting rites of passage for a generation of fatherless and underfathered men. In other words, he puts his faith in action. It's dynamic, fueled by a unique life of physical and professional accomplishment, experience, and travel. And not just that, but real encounters with the paranormal that affirm for him the value of the here and now. He has a fascinating story, and this introduction doesn't do it justice. This was a rare interview that, though it went for almost four hours, could have gone for much longer. And that's a testament to the story that God is telling with John's life, which I'm thrilled to share with you today. In our conversation, John and I discussed his background and introduction to Christ, paranormal encounters in Ireland, feeding the fire of faith, surviving slander, why God doesn't care about your reputation, and Christians and childhood trauma. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, Thank you. Please continue to share this podcast with friends and leave five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so the Renaissance can reach more men and women. A couple quick shout-outs before we begin. First, my friend Evan Amato at Rewire the West has some exciting news. He has a new book out. If you're a listener of this show, you likely know how hard it is to get good advice on how to live well as a man. Our culture is full of so-called advice that's not only anti-man, but anti-God. If you follow the path the world lays out for you, you do so at your peril. So where can you go to get good advice you actually need? One place is to start by looking to the past, specifically the great men and women of history and the ideas that inspired them to lead incredible lives. That's where Evan's new book, Keys to Life, comes in. The work explores the hidden life lessons of the Vatican and distills them into actionable principles you can implement right away. Now, when you hear Vatican, don't think this is something exclusively for Catholics. First, Evan lives in Italy, so he has access to the Vatican that we in America don't. Second, he assured to me that the archetypes and life lessons he explores are applicable to people of all backgrounds and denominations. I asked him specifically about this, so reformers, be comforted. The purpose of Evan's book is to help you learn from the greats, get a guide for your life's journey, and unlock the door to meaningful living. From Michelangelo and Bernini, to Peter in the Pieta, you'll learn the time-tested keys to life that have been helping people overcome life's hardest difficulties for the past 2,000 years. And since this is the Renaissance of Men podcast, you might get some insight into that era as well. You can order at the link in the description and get 25% off when you use the code RENOFMEN. Evan has been a huge support to me and this podcast, so I hope you'll all do him a solid and give him some support in return. Also, big thanks to the supplement company, Neolife. A couple months ago, they sent me sample products to try with the agreement that if I enjoyed them, I'd tell you guys about them. That turned out to be easy because I really enjoyed their chocolate protein shake. It's by far one of the smoothest and most delicious protein powders I've tried. 
world-famous athletes you might know, like Magic Johnson, use Neolife products, as well as current NFL pro, Cody Hollister. Neolife products are made without chemicals, lead, toxins, or synthetic additives. So if you're looking for health food supplements you can rely on, made with high-quality standards and a strong ethic, check them out. Hit the link in the description for more. And thanks to Nick Gavrilov for hooking me up. Finally, the Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Brandon Lansdowne last week and appreciated hearing his story about he and his family are putting their theology into action, creating godly prosperity for the kingdom. You can catch a special bonus episode of Will Reforms His Coffee running in the middle of this show. I'm having so much fun with him, I'm not ready to let it go quite yet. Consider it an epilogue. You can join in the adventure by visiting ReformationCoffee.com and entering the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with any subscription. That's right, sign up weekly, bi-weekly, or even monthly and get a free bag, which I hope you'll do because frankly, it's the middle of June and I've just about had it with woke everything forever. So once again, visit ReformationCoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE and help deliver us all from woke coffee. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, the man behind Primal Virtues and a husband, father, therapist, and leader, John Rios. Hey, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Man, it's been a, it's been a long time coming, but I think the timing actually worked out, uh, worked out pretty well because you've got a lot of really exciting things going on, a lot of new developments going on. You've helped a ton of men, so I think this timing worked out perfectly. Hey, I'm just happy to be here, man. Sweet. Well, so you and I have had the chance to talk a couple times, um, but one of the things that I remember most is that you have a really interesting background story that I don't know how many people really know about all the the adventures you've been on, the different phases of life that you've moved through. So I wonder if we can just just kind of start there, because from where you began, you ended up in a completely different place from where you started. That's a good thing, praise God. But uh, let's just start with your background story and 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 a bit like. Uh, I guess, where you came from. Sure. Well, I'll have to leave out a lot. I mean, because there's yeah. a lot there. But I turned 43, by the way, this month. So 43 years, 43 years of glorified chaos. But um, yeah, man. So uh, so my background's, I'm, I'm Hispanic. I was born in Puerto Rico, but uh, really kind of grew up in the South. So South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia. And then um, my, my, I had insane energy. My parents put me in soccer early, so I got real hooked in the game of soccer and uh, just had a knack for that. So I ended up playing for the Olympic development team for most of my childhood, trained with some of the best players in the nation, and then I ended up getting a, a full ride to play D1 soccer at a military academy. And uh, the, re- the sole reason I went to this academy is because I had a lot of discipline issues. Uh, I got kicked out of high school senior year mm. and just – just had a real hard time complying and and obeying basic basic rules. So uh, the mil- military academy, um, I think, was one of the best decisions I ever made. Hard four years, trained with the army, but uh, got to play against the best collegiate athletes and also get the military training. That's why that's why I had a run in with Christ. That was that was over a um, you know, for for a lot of people. I, I think. The way they come to Christ is, this isn't everybody, but for me, it was uh, a breakup. It was a, a moment of pain mm-hmm. and uh, there was a, as a moment of desperation, right? So 
that that was where the the world got flipped upside down. I didn't have a, a normal conversion experience. I wasn't it wasn't in a church environment. It wasn't in a Christian environment. I mean, I, I didn't know any Christians at the academy, really. I, I knew one. He was the the team manager, but um, I had I, I had a moment there where I just prayed to Christ. I said, Jesus, if you're real, I need help right now. I feel like I'm going to die. I was I was in the middle of a panic attack. I didn't know it at the time. But, um, and I, that's, that's a funny prayer. I used to pray that, that exact prayer, something to the, to the effect of God, if you're real, you need to speak to me right now. I closed my bedroom door as a high school kid. I always had a sense there was something there and, uh, nothing would happen. I'd go on my merry way and, uh, got, got, I'm, I'm going back in the timeline a bit, but, uh, got, got deeper and deeper into drugs and alcohol flash forward. Now I'm back. Now I'm at the military academy. And I basically hit a moment of pain with this, this breakup. It's a crazy story. I had never had a vision or anything like that. Middle of the night, I've been clean off everything for about two weeks because I was told if you don't get your GPA up, you're going to, you're going to kick you out. Hmm. So, uh, I took that very serious. I didn't have any money. I couldn't go anywhere else. Uh, so was able to taper off. And after about two weeks, I'm studying for exams. I got to pass. I sit down in my bed at about 2 a.m. And I have this, let's call it like an open vision where I see on this screen, my girlfriend who I intended to marry after college, cheating on me with another man. Mm. <laughs> wow. And it was so, it was so vivid and so real. And I wasn't asleep. I wasn't on anything. I mean, I was wide awake, just got done studying psychology. And uh, it was so real and so vivid. I knew it was real, but I grabbed a cell phone, called her immediately. I said, hey, listen, this weird thing just happened. Did you just do this? And she mm. starts weeping. She's like, how did you know? I just, I just cheated on you. Wow. <laughs> and she copped to it. That's pretty incredible. Well, she, she, her, the silence was what copped to it. She was weeping oh, and crying. Okay. You know, but I already knew. And so I was devastated. So I'm going into this panic attack, man, because this is my future out the window. Wow. And uh, I, don't, I don't even think I hung up. I just put the phone down. And I turned, I rolled over on the bed, crying like a little baby. I said, Jesus, if you're real, I need help. I feel like I'm going to die. That's, you know, if you've ever had a panic attack, you literally feel like you're dying. Mm -hmm. So uh, in that moment, like two seconds later, this presence came into the room. Um, that, that presence started to get closer and closer to me. And as it did, heat started to pour over my body, electricity. From head to toe, um, weight like a like I, I like a ten thousand pound boulder just pushed me into the bed and held me there, and then just waves of peace, man. Like I call it liquid peace, mm. and uh, the, the, it got more and more intense. Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty, thirty minutes. Electricity, heat, weight, peace, to the point where I was I was initially in a place of panic. It was in such peace at the end of this 30 minutes that now I was like, I can barely keep my eyes open. I'm really restful and serene. And I remember thinking, I hope this doesn't leave. Right. So anyways, I fall asleep, wake up the next morning and the, the electricity's gone, the heat's gone, the weight's gone, but the liquid peace was still in the room. It was, it was like in me all around me. And I woke up smiling and I remember saying, it's still here. Like I called it an it. Hmm. <laughs> and um now that that's an interesting story but what but the fruit of the story is is what really profoundly affected my life is 
from that moment forward, I started to get really hungry to read the Bible. So I was just reading the Bible. And I went and found that manager of the team. And I was like, look, bro, I don't know anything about it. Like, I'm just going to follow you around. And you're just going to just talk. I'll just listen to what you talk about. But he let me follow him like a little puppy dog. I read my Bible. And people would literally come up to me and say, bro, like, what happened to you, man? You're different, you know? Um, and and the, the desire for drugs, hard drugs just died. It's mm. like the, the desire itself just melted away, as did alcohol. Uh, and um, man, I just remember looking up from my desk one night, reading my Bible while my roommates were all watching porn on their different computers. <laughs> and I started laughing because I was like, guys, are you seeing this? Like, what is... <laughs> they're all like, yeah. yeah, man, it's weird. I'm like, I know this is so weird. So, you know, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be something. I was just, it was just something was just happening to me, like a good infection. Mm. Right. So that, that was the catalytic moment for me, the tipping point where I got real hungry to grow in my faith. I knew two things. God, I prayed to Jesus. Jesus is real. And everything's going to be okay. That was pretty much all I knew. Now, my parents, I was raised periodically in the church, but soccer took precedence. I was always gone every weekend playing in these tournaments. I wasn't, I wasn't really in the church scene, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but I had some background there. My parents, my parents love God, but I just, for me, it was largely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, so anyways, that, that was my conversion moment. Uh, there's more I could say, but let me pause and just check in and see if if there's a direction you want to head. Man, that's an incredible, that's an incredible story. And was this, this was while you were in, in, you said the army or the military academy playing D1 soccer? Is It was during that period of time? Yeah, it was uh, my third year, I believe. Yeah, I was around 22. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. Okay. And so, and so you're sitting, just picturing you sitting in this room. I mean, I can definitely relate to, uh, I mean, because... I came to, I, I was introduced to Christ after a breakup as well. So maybe not, not exactly the same circumstances because I still had a little bit of a road to travel to understand what I had experienced. But that's, uh, that, that, that uh, pain is a very real kind of pain that I think drives people uh, to, look for, for, to look for healing. Uh, and so you're sitting there, you're sitting there with, and your roommates are watching you go through all of this because you said they're no, all watching. Like, well, they're, not, they're not in the room with yeah. you, but I mean, they're watching you go through this like, shift over the course of several weeks. Yeah, they're noticing. And even, get this, before I was the party guy, uh, all right, after this happened, about three weeks later, my, the head coach asked me to pray over the guys in the locker room like before a game. I'm like, what? you want me to pray? We had never done anything like that. It was just the weirdest thing. I, I, had, I guess I had been fairly vocal about, about Jesus at that point. I didn't tell anybody about what had happened. I, you know, I didn't have language for that. It sounded weird. I didn't want to sound weird, you know? Mm. <clears throat> so it took me years to be able to tell people that because I didn't want to be thought of as some freak show. But man, like the fruit was there and I'm still going hard. And so like something legitimate took place in my spirit. And yeah, um, yeah man, so it was real. So, so, within, so, within, so the shift was that profound and that immediate that the coach was having you praying over the fellow players on a D1 soccer team before a game three weeks yeah. later. Yeah, man, I was equally shocked. I was like, yeah. you want, you want, I don't, I was like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> but hey, man, you know, like, I, I think that's, that's kind of, 
that's kind of the the way of God sometimes is uh they use the foolish foolish things of this of this earth to to confound the wise and um I was just open and willing man I didn't really have a I didn't really have a let's in a a religious um in, in a negative connotation here I, I didn't really have a religious lens right. it was more just a, an innocent hey yeah sure okay I'll I'll pray you know there wasn't a, any hype behind it yeah and that and that makes all the difference when when people can sense that you know this isn't coming from some dogmatic top down it's like i've had a real inward change of heart and and people can sense that that and they can see it like i'm just i'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who like is spending a lot of time around you during this particular time like you go from being the party guy and within 3 weeks like cuz i mean 3 weeks later yeah you're praying over the team but the shift in you was immediate and and what did the guys around you think of this? How did they respond to this? This is because I can imagine something in my head that's looking almost borderline miraculous, but I imagined it looked less miraculous in person. But how could the people around you not have been impacted or were they impacted? Yeah, man. I mean, they were impacted in the sense that, okay, this guy's going through something. We respect mm. it. It seems to be legitimate. Uh it's, it was more of a curious thing. Like, this is really curious. Uh, mm. I, at that time, I held, I may still hold it. I held a confinement record on, in barracks for six months. I <laughs> violated so many, had so many violations. So, yeah, man, I was, I was, you know, had some issues. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, I think um, I'm still friends with those guys till this day. And heck, I was just with a couple of them like a, couple, a month ago. But yeah, man, I, I couldn't speak for them, what they were noticing. I, I can say this, it was, it was dramatic enough to where people would come up to me and say, did, jokingly, they said, what happened to you, bro? Did you find God or something? That was like the phrase. And I, I would, I'd be like, I don't know, man. I don't, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and he found you. He found me. That's it. That's, that's really, that's really incredible. And I can understand how they would be like, it's very curious and that you would, I guess, from the outside perspective, yeah, he would be the guy to find God in a way, because you were already kind of like an outsider playing outside the rules of the conventional rules in a way for better or worse. And so you're on there, you're out there on the frontier, just perfect for Jesus, Jesus to just walk up to you and say, Hey, cause you're already, you're already the kind of guy who does things your own way, right? There's a, there's a, there's something that fits there about that. Yeah, man. But, but like anything, man, I, I think, God, God has a, a funny way of handling us. There's some, some things are instant and some things are a process, right? So right, right. I I, that, that was the beginning of a process of development, of, of discipleship, man, just getting in the word. Uh, that, that actually set the trajectory for me. So my trajectory was soccer. I, was gonna, I wanted to pursue that after graduation, play at a higher level. But I also had this real hunger to grow and to be mentored and discipled. So my best friend actually got me a internship at a, at a church in West Palm Beach, Florida. And it just so happened there was a minor league team down there that I had played with the year before during the summer. So I, so I got to play minor league ball and intern at this church uh, basically the six months after I graduated, which then took me to another a discipleship school in Northern Ireland where I also tried out for a squad and played with a, a, a team in Northern Ireland for two seasons. So I got, I got the dual discipleship and 
following through with with the, the desires of my heart to play ball at a higher level. Uh, and that that was the answer to prayer, man. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it just really you never know where this thing's going to go when, when you <laughs> when you get get into alignment with with the spirit of God. I think the scriptures say the spirit of God is like a wind. He blows wherever he desires. You don't know if, where it's coming or where it's going. And, and I think that's kind of the faith journey is just kind of throwing the sails up and going, Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm open. Here's kind of, here's the desire of my heart. I'm open to where you want to take me and what you want to do. I have no idea what that may look like, but I'm open. And that is what I did. And it's been an adventure ever since. So, okay. So you, so you're overseas and you're pursuing both soccer and faith at the same time. Where did things, where did things go from there? Well, how providential that you're able to, to do both of those things at once, because I think a lot of men will find themselves into a position where they would have to choose one or the other. So it's very, it's very providential that you had the opportunity to kind of do both. That would be the normal part, the normal story, right? Like, well, I was in this place where I had to choose between, you know, going to pursue soccer and, or this internship at this church and but that you got to do both is very cool. Yeah. Well, I was ready to throw soccer out the window, man. I was like, dude, this Jesus thing is real. Wow. You know? Um, All right. Now, now I, I say that now back then probably wouldn't have said it like that, but I really was like, took an internship getting probably below minimum wage. That's at a church. You know, that was the, the initial step, but I, I will say this, man, it, it took, massive cojones for me to get on a plane. I'd never been overseas. I, I took my, my, my cleats, my gear, and the goal was to go to this discipleship school and try to land a contract with the local team in Belfast. Uh, I was trembling in my boots on that flight, man. I'd never been overseas. I'd, I'm like, dude, am I good enough to, to play with these guys? I have no idea. The, the European levels tend to be higher yeah. than here. And um, man, I just... I just had like in it ch- childlike faith that God could could do it, that God could open doors. And, and uh, so I walked into a pub when I first got to Belfast, ordered a Guinness. By, by the way, um, uh, I was able to I, I was able to put alcohol away for years. Um, when I w- when I went to Ireland, I was like, man, I got to have a freaking Guinness. Well, yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't um, count as alcohol. Like, That's just food. Yeah. It's like, it's like eating a cheeseburger actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I get a whole meal. Um, yeah. So anyways, I go to this pub and I talked to the bartender. I said, Hey man, listen, I, here's my resume. I want to get, I want to get a trial with some of the local teams. I don't know where, where should I go? So this guy goes, you know, he's, he's like, look, we'll be in touch. I mean, what do you mean? We'll be in touch. He says, he says, where do you live? I'm like, I'm down in the farmhouse down that way. Says, okay, we'll be in touch. Uh, I'm like, this guy's off his rocker. Two days later, I get a knock at the door. It's this old man. His name's Basel. He says, Are you Johnny? I said, Yeah. He said, Did you bring your boots? I said, Yeah. He said, Be ready tomorrow, 10 a.m. I'll pick you up. I said, Where are we going? He says, Don't worry about it. I'll pick you up. I'm like, okay, this is like a movie scene. Yeah. Guy picks up the next day. It turns out he is the caretaker manager for the local club. All right. Um, he drives me to their pitch. There's a stadium. There's the, there's a locker room attached to the town pub, and we get into the shuttle bus and we're playing an away game. Turns out it is the round of sixteen for the Irish Cup, and our this team 
This team has made it into the round of 16. I've been invited to travel with the team to watch an away game. So I'm like meeting all the players. I'm like, this is freaking awesome, man. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, this is like, I didn't say, I, you couldn't set, you couldn't think this stuff up. So long and short of it, man, I, uh, I go into the locker room and they, they like, look, they're like, here, we're going to let you dress out just with the team. I'm like, are you serious? This does not happen in America. Right now. You know, but I'm Puerto Rican and I had big curly hair and I looked different. And I think they probably thought it was fun. So anyways, they're like, you know what? We're just going to let you kick around and warm up with the team. And I'm like, okay, well, now I can show my stuff. So I'm, I'm warming up with the team and you just get about a 45 minute warm up, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm putting on my game face, bro. I'm going all out on every touch. And I, I had a good showing during warm up. So I get that the, during the game, game starts, first half goes by, it's nil, nil. Second half, uh, they put me in 15 minutes in the game. This would never happen in America. Wow. Wow. I played my balls off. End up hitting the post twice, almost score. We go into extra time penalty shootout, and the coach asked me to kick. He asked me to shoot. And I'd like to say I was brave, and I was like, look, man, if I miss, you guys will never invite me back, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not shoot today. So we end, up, we end up winning the game. The whole stadium goes nuts. I. I'm like, you know, they think I'm great. We get back in the shuttle bus, go back to our stadium, back to our locker room, walk into the town pub. The whole village is there. And this is my first experience playing overseas. And it just, in that moment, it's like kind of a dream come true, but it also felt like God is with me. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile, I'm studying Jesus, you know, while I'm training with this team and I do play with them for two seasons and, um, man, it was just a wild, wild, wild ride. Uh, I was just willing to go, man. And that, that was, I guess that was, that was a big piece to the puzzle is just the willingness. I, I just want to, I just want to acknowledge, uh, the wisdom and not taking that kick because if, you know, something had gone wrong or you had missed that village would have murdered you. Cause like, we got a strange, we got oh, a strange man. American over here. Forget it. You're, <laughs> they'll never find the body. <laughs> Exactly. Or if I would have scored, then I would have been like legend. <laughs> That's true. That's true. They may make movies about you for sure. Now I'm That's long like, forgotten. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, well, what, what ended up, uh, what ended up happening? What ended up happening there? So, so, so they, so you're in the pub and you're having a great time and the, the village is celebrating the win and the, in the round, in the round of 16, which is a big deal because I've been, I haven't been in Ireland, but I've been in Colombia when, yeah. um, when the Medellin team, um, you know, one, one, uh, a major game and that whole city went crazy. Oh, you know, we don't have anything like it in America. Not, not in a positive sense anyway. Yeah. It's, it's really a, it's really a, a religion over there, but, um, man, I guess what happened is they just kind of embraced me as a family member. I didn't have any money. So, you know, they gave me, I had enough money that they would pay me pennies to, to play. It wasn't like I was making big bucks. Right. Uh, but, it, but to me, it felt like, it felt like a win, you know? Um, but, uh, it was really just getting to experience life in the wild, man, you know, like Mm -hmm. away from, away from what I know playing on foreign turf. I, when you're the foreign guy, it's got, you've, you've traveled, man. Some, some of these, when you're the foreign guy, it's kind of exotic, right? They treat you different. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I got the Royal treatment while I was there. And, uh, I, I was actually at a discipleship with YWAM. YWAM is like, it's, it's youth with a mission. They're all over the world and their focus is, I think they go into like unreached 
zones and, and they really just kind of, I think they have a, a two pronged approach. They just serve the communities and they also they try to just bring the gospel in different capacities. So yeah, man, it was a, it was a mentorship experience. Some of the guys were from older men from South Africa, older men from Costa Rica, from all over the world. So I was just getting to rub shoulders with these wise Christian men that had been around the block that had been in the war, the war zones and were just experienced um, experienced men that that really blessed me man so uh, that was those were really formative times yeah that's a great time for for men to travel in their in their 20s and the young 20s especially if you can keep your head on your shoulders yeah. because that's you know a lot of guys will go and they'll travel and their part they'll party and stuff and they won't really get an experience of anything meaningful and they're seeing life through the lens of a hangover or just bouncing from place to place but the opportunity to actually be shepherded and be mentored and be really present in a place that's the real value of travel where it's not like box ticking right what's it chesterton has a quote about that he says something like um the the tourist um i'm going to butcher it but I'll, I'll, the tourist sees what he what he plans to see the traveler sees what's there something like that you know, the yeah. idea that if you're actually like the tourists will come and, and, and go through all the things that you got to see and then and then take off. But the traveler goes and really is present in a place and experiences it fully. And it sounds like you got to have a little bit of those experiences and they can be so formative to men in their early 20s if they have the discipline to if they have the discipline to go on a trip like that and not fall off into one ditch or the other. Yeah, you just that just kind of triggered a thought. I One of the guys there, the base leader was a. African guy. His name was Mike, Mike Oman, just a teddy bear, teddy bear of a, of a man, probably six, four, just big, beefy guy, mm-hmm. really, really wise, really loving guy. And I remember I walked into his house one day, I was dropping off a package or something and he just looked at me and he just gave me this big bear hug, this big bear hug. And after like five seconds, I just started weeping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, it just came out of nowhere. I wasn't sad or anything, but he just helped me. I just wept for what felt like three whole minutes. And then, you know, when I was ready to uncover my face and I I didn't know what to say, I was just like, Oh, okay. Thanks. And he just let me go. And, uh, I think that was one of the first, not one of the first times, but a first time for me experienced father validation outside of my own father. Because mm. my father had validated me. I mean, my dad's awesome. He's done that my whole life, but I never had another man do something like that. And it was, was spontaneous, man. But it was like, it did, it just really jolted some things in me. I didn't even know that I, I didn't, I didn't even know I needed that, you know? So the stuff like that would happen periodically while I was there. It was just a real formative time. Yes. Yes, that's another that's another great blessing of 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 travel is being open to interactions like that. We I want to talk about the father validation aspect because I think that's really important. I think you experience something that a lot of men are lacking. They've never had in their families. They've never had in their homes, and then they're and they're seeking it in many cases in, in not in great places. But just just for a second, you know, I think there's something to again. You put yourself this is maybe the second instance where you've kind of put yourself out there on the fringe, right? Like it takes a lot for a man, like I'm going to get on the plane, fly to Belfast. It sounds like you had a a one-way ticket. Uh Got my shoes on. Yeah, there you go. Like 
it's it's takes you know real guts to fly to Ireland where they take soccer really seriously, right? And say, I'm just going to try out and see if I can get on a team. Just to just to go overseas alone with a one way ticket, but then to but then to show up and and to try and play on a team is its own big thing. So you've again you've put yourself way out there, outside of the outside of the herd, let's say, and you create this openness for these experiences to come to you, right? Like you're 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 open, you're available for this energy to flow into your life, whether because there's the the old man who met you at the farmhouse, right? That coach. Um, you did a great, great Irish accent, by the way. That was very well done. But it, and then you have this this African man showing up. I think there's something in there to explore, you know, where you just you you had this sense of availability to where you were at. Like you're just open, right? Which is really rare to re- and, and to open yourself to receive these men coming into your life and creating, I guess, these opportunities for you. Right. Yeah. Man, I, you know, I read I read Eldridge's book. Wild at Heart when I was yeah. in my early 20s. And there's something about that, the adventure component he talks about that I always, I, that was like my number one quest or question for God or, or request was, God, I don't need a mansion. I don't need a yacht. I don't need to be famous, but I do want to have an adventure. Right? Mm-hmm. I want to like really walk with you and I want to, whatever you've got, like, let's go, you know? And, and so that, that's, that's always resided deep in my spirit. And Part part of the adventure component is the is the willingness is the is the the, the willingness to step into unfamiliar territory while trembling, and and that that tugs on that trust factor that that faith component that the the risk the calculated risk thing is is huge. So I think you're hitting on something that's very true. Unless we as men, unless we as humans are willing to engage faith through the lens of calculated risks uh, outside the bounds of what may be considered safe or socially uh, acceptable. And just to move into the wild with God in whatever direction he may be prompting, um, a lot of people won't do that. A lot of people would prefer uh, security and safety under the guise of wisdom not realizing they may be missing out. I mean, like, like uh, Jacob, the father of faith, he could have said, no, God, I'm good here. I've got a great spot. But God says, just leave your town and come. Where am I going? I'm not going to tell you just to start walking. There's no, (laughs) there's no three point plan there. It's just, can you trust me? Mm -hmm. Can you trust me? And a lot of us really struggle with the trust thing. We don't trust God. We haven't been taught that he is good, that he is trustworthy. Uh, we've experienced pain in life. And so there's a hesitance there. And I would just say, I've learned more about God in the adventure and in the risk than I have, than I ever have in the security and the comfort and the safety. I, I'm really appreciate, I really appreciate you said this because I think that there's a lot to explore here because um, one of the things that I encounter in my mentorship and that I see a lot of is guys really hesitating to step into their lives and they, they have a tendency of hiding behind scripture. Where is that in the Bible? Or well, well, the guy Bible says this, like actually standing, putting the Bible up in front of them so they don't have to step into any amount of risk in their life in their lives. And uh, that's a, that can be a very tricky thing to work with. When I think you can read through the Bible and you can see men taking crazy risks all the time, like 
Abraham had a son when he was, what, 100 years old, and that was Isaac. And God's like, take Isaac up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham's like, okay, right? <laughs> uh, you know, no, no pushback, no arguing. And, and, and naturally, you know, that, that, that was never really the plan. It was a test of faith. But there's a, there's a component of Abraham was willing to set out on that adventure and be a parent at 100 years old in the first place. There's a scene where Sarah's like, everyone laugh with me. Like, I'm a, I'm a parent in my old age. Like, let's all laugh. And there's so much adventure. And, and of course, there's many places throughout the Bible that shows up as well. And yet you have this generation or multiple generations, I guess, of Christian men and, and in many cases, women that are afraid to set out on that journey of faith. And they actually use their own faith as a shield against faith. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. You can mask your fears and through scripture. You can mask them with wise sounding quotes or through justifications. Mm-hmm. But, and you may even fool yourself. That's the thing. We're really good. We're really good at talking ourselves out of what we need to do <laughs> because, yeah. because that wouldn't be a wise decision. Uh, but I'll tell you, man, um, basically, if you just, if you took a, if you just did a study of, of the characters you love in scripture and just asked yourself, all right, where's the risk component here? Did they, where did they step into risk? You'll find it every time. You'll find, whether it's male or female, they're stepping into unfamiliar territory and they're banking on God to show up. They're banking on God. And I think, you know, when it comes to relationship with my wife, she wants me to bank on her. She wants me to lean on her and to just give her the benefit of the doubt. She's said that to me before. I just want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. Like I've proven myself to you, give me the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's literally how God operates with us is Son, I, I've, I've done a lot here. You know, I've, mm. I've given up my own son. I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. I want you to entrust your heart to me. Uh, and there's a scripture that says, God is good and everything he does is good. But our hearts are often wounded and we have a hard time with the trust thing. And so we, we hold back. And, and I think, you know, you know, I remember being in a group years ago, had a group of about 20 men. It's a big dude in the back, just jacked athlete. And uh, he raises his hand and he said, hey, man, you know, I'm going to be honest, bro. Like, I don't have any fears in my life. Like, I, I generally don't have anything I'm afraid of. And, and I believed him. Mm-hmm. But then I remember saying to him, I was like, I respect that. My question to you is, do you think it's possible to not have fear because you're playing small in your life? Because if you'll step out into unfamiliar territory, while you're, it, it, it's going to trigger fear, fear of the unknown, fear of, of what's around the corner. And that is where we really start to ch- tap into true faith, I think. Yes, where we're, where we're forced to step out of our comfort zone is such a trite phrase, but where, where we're really forced into a, into a position of, of, I think about initiation, I guess, like men's initiations. And I know that, um, that you have your, your primal course, um, which we'll, which we'll talk about, but in men's initiation, in order for an initiation to work, I believe that a man or a boy going through it must be forced into a position where he can't achieve this task with his, with his known level of strength. He has to go deeper within himself to find res- resources of strength he didn't know that he has. He doesn't know that he has. 
and higher above himself to a place of faith. And only by doing those two things can he complete the task in front of him. And then when he completes the task, to be honored and recognized, to be acknowledged and appreciated for completing that task by a circle of men who themselves have completed the task and that he respects. So those elements together form up the initiatory experience, right? And, and there's faith is such an essential component of it, um, but, but we don't have any real rituals in our culture right now to force people into that place of, to force men in particular, into that, that place of really having to lean on faith. Everything is comfortable. Everything is easy. And to subject yourself to voluntary hardship as a man to the point where you would really have to lean on faith is so rare. But that's where faith is forged, isn't it? I mean, the power of faith is forged, right? Yeah, I, I agree, man. I was just talking to my wife yesterday. <laughs> we were joking. I was like, babe, if we win the Powerball today, you could see how in a year, in a year, nothing against my, not, nothing wrong with having lots of money, but you could see how the temptation becomes, I don't really need God. I could just write a check. I don't right. really need God to show up until sickness hits or until some tragedy hits and all of a sudden money can't solve your problem. I'd rather just come to that conclusion now. Like <laughs> I need God now. I need I need, whether I'm high on the mountain or down in the valley, I need God today as much as I needed him 10 years ago, as much as I'm, I'll need him 20 years from now. I need this presence of God. There's that scripture that says, it's Moses. He says, God, if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And if you're going, I don't want to stay here. I want to go with you. Mm-hmm. Right? So whatever the case, man, like <clears throat> the dependency thing in a, in a decadent culture, we don't understand uh, there's, I think it's, um, I think it's in the book of Revelation it, when John's writing to one of the churches. I forget which church it is. He says, "You don't understand. You're poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. If you would just come to me, I would give you salve. I would anoint your eyes, so, so that you could understand. You are poor and naked, and you need to be clothed with linen, white linens. You, you are much poorer than you think you are, mm-hmm. but because." You have your your let's say your your basic needs met of shelter and and money in the bank and car or whatever. You don't think you need God, and oftentimes it is the case that it, tragedy comes, and that is where people you know C.S. Lewis says pain is God's megaphone to a dying world. Oftentimes, so uh, what if we could just preempt that? Like we don't wait for the tragedy. We don't wait till things get hard. Uh, we in, in the mountains and the valleys, we understand, man, I need, I am poor and blind and naked. I need salve for my eyes to see accurately. Mm-hmm. I agree. I was, uh, I was out at the pool at my apartment yesterday, just getting a little bit of sun. And, you know, there's a, there's a father playing with his daughter and a bunch of people just, you know, chilling and they're, and they've got just, just, you know, pop rap music playing, you know, it's like this is a little girl listening to this stuff, and they're just kind of taking it, taking it for granted. You know, we can the sunscreen as well for my seed oil bros. But you know, it's just like the exposure, the exposure to these values, where it's like, let's just we'll just have this music going and not question, just kind of as a fish, we're kind of swimming in these values and not recognizing that that's the, the surest example when you listen to the music of today that 
no, like we, and I can relate to this because this, this was me, you know, poor and, and blind and, and naked and getting people to see that, you know, just how dark some of these things are that we all take for granted. It's uh-huh. can be, it can be quite, it can be quite shocking and I'm getting more and more sensitive to it. Like I can understand now why the idea of Christians moving into like commune kind of circumstances is like, I can't really be exposed to those values anymore because, because it, it breaks my heart. But also uh-huh. there's a component of like, Hey, that, that used to be me. Right. Uh-huh. And that, that's a whole other conversation, but man, I don't, I don't know how to deliver this message to people because they don't want to hear, especially during pride month. They don't want to hear that they're poor and blind and they're naked, right? They want to hear that they're glorious and awesome and they're everything that a person should be. It's like, not exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, you're making me think about that. I guess that triggered the the thought. You know, one of the, one of the, I think one of the most profound miracles that, that we get used to is that God could keep a man on fire and set apart in a degenerate culture. Like there's this, this fire inside the man. What does fire do? It purifies, right? Mm. Purges. It, there's a, the fire, the, the God is a consuming fire. That's what he calls himself. When we have the spirit of God, it's interesting how, how God can keep a man set apart, even in a degenerate culture or degenerate era. And, you know, we're supposed to let our, our light shine before men. And yet it, you know, it's a funny thing to, let's say, have your eyes open to what is evil, what is good, and, and be around people who don't quite see it like you're, like you're saying. They don't, they don't see it the same way. <clears throat> and, you know, I remember C.S. Lewis said, you don't understand drunkenness when you're drunk. You understand <laughs> drunkenness when you're sober. And you don't understand sleep while you're asleep. You understand sleep when you're awake. Amen. Right? And it is the, the righteous man, the one who has been transformed who, or is in the process of sanctification, who begins to see reality for what it is. And I think one of the best messages is to walk as a man on fire in a generation that is blind, pitiable, naked. That is to walk in obedience. That is to walk with courage, with, uh, to, to, to the best of your ability clamp down on the truth, right? To, to be a man that is just filled with the spirit of God and who prays and exercises these disciplines. That to me is a profound miracle that we could walk this thing out when the culture is the way it is. So to, so to, to, to run it back to you in Ireland, were these things, I mean, I know that we're 20 years on from, from those days and, and discipleship and sanctification, regeneration is all part of that, but were you becoming aware of these things at the time? Because here you are kind of being a man on fire almost overnight. You're going through a breakup, you know, and then Jesus comes to you, the Holy Spirit comes to you and you suddenly do this 180. And then here you are in Belfast and here you are in in these cultures. Like, are these things starting to dawn on you at this time? Like, are you starting to recognize like, wow, I was, I was really asleep and now I'm awake and I understand sleeping. Like, did you start putting the pieces together? Did you have someone come into your life to show you these things? Yeah, well, this is where we get into the paranormal weird stuff. Ah, uh, perfect. Uh, <laughs> which is always interesting to talk about. But yeah, no, during that during that time, I was uh, I was at this I was at this uh, let's call it a monastery, and I was with a small team of about eight people, 
And, um, you know, I'm on, I'm trying, I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, I'm trying to grow, man. My, my spirit was hungry. It was urgent for growth, right? I wanted to know, like, what is real? What is truth? What is veritas? Who is God? Who am I? <laughs> I'm an image bearer. What does that freaking mean? And um, group eight, one day we're praying in this, in a circle. And there's, there's like six women, two dudes, me and another dude. We're praying and this girl, who's a Palestinian girl. She starts to like growl like an animal while we're praying. And I was, it was honestly really weird. So uh, she growls and then she slams my hand down and she runs out of the room. And it was like the weirdest. Thing. I'm like, she's a foreign girl. I didn't know what to think. Well, anyways, two minutes later, this other girl comes back. She says, guys, Sammy needs, she needs some help. Like, so me being one of the only other dudes, I walked walk down the hall, walk into this room with this girl. And uh, she's standing maybe 20 feet away at the opposite side of the room, flushed to the wall with almost her nose touching the wall, staring at the wall like, like a statue. And it was just so odd. And I remember from the doorframe, I said, her name was Sammy. I said, Sammy, is everything okay? And she, she turned and looked at me, like her turned her head and looked at me. And her eyes were like yellowish. And she said, Sammy is not here in a deep voice. Wow. And then, um, and then I, I, somebody pushed me into the room with this girl. <laughs> so one, one of the other team members pushed me in. And I, logically, I was like, man, this is a little bit freaky. But it was like a boldness, like a fire came over me. And I just began to walk to, towards her because I could tell there was something demonic here. And um, mm -hmm. as I began to speak out loud and pray out loud, and when I started to pray out loud, she started to, let's call it, manifest something that wasn't human. And she, she started to, I don't want to say these other voices, but in another voice started to scream and bash her head against me and trying to injure her, injure me, injure. So anyways, I'm praying over her and she's turned into this whole other person. It's the weirdest thing. Her eyes are yellow. I don't know what's happening. All I know is I'm deeply concerned for this girl and I'm not afraid at all. All I felt was boldness, but I didn't know what the heck I was doing. You know, I was like, I think I read about some of this stuff in the Bible. Jesus would handle demonic spirits. And so I just, would, you know, tried to think of everything I'd ever read in the Bible and, and pause, pause for a moment. I think sometimes God, God will throw us in the deep end and allow us to learn through the experience rather than teach us on the front end, but, just yeah. like I do with my kids sometimes. But anyways, long, I'll leave out a lot of details here. Not necessary. Yeah. There's a lot of details that I'll leave out, but after three hours of walking this girl through quite a bit of forgiveness and having to silence this thing so that she could communicate with me. Mm -hmm. I'd have to like command this thing to shut up and stop, stop causing her physical pain so that she could communicate with me. And after three hours, she collapses into my arms and into my neck and she's weeping. I lay her in the bed and I said, Samia, what the heck is going on? And she says, she says, Rios, listen, I don't know, but there was a man's voice inside of my body. And every time you commanded it to be quiet and to stop hurting me, it would obey you. And she said, I'm really exhausted. And then I just let her sleep. And she slept for what seemed like 13 hours straight. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
anyways, the whole atmosphere was charged for three hours. Like you could cut it with a knife. You could, there was a real spiritual war going on. Mm-hmm. And um, there's more to that story, but basically that was what I, that rest of the night, I was, I was wide-eyed, like on fire, bro. Just holy crap. I felt invincible. Like God is really with me. Like this is what authority looks like. And I was just starting to figure out when Jesus said in Luke 10, he said, behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Um, I've given you authority over all the, all the powers of the enemy. You may walk among snake and scorpion and nothing will by any means injure you. He's given you all power and authority. So I was beginning to understand what the spirit realm, but connecting the dots and understanding what authority means. Like Christ literally has power. And, um, and that, that was, that was a real wake up moment that, that confirmed for me a lot of the stuff that I had previously experienced in my life, I had a lot of weird stuff growing up. I would, I would be choked in the middle of the night by an unseen hand. Uh, I would be levitated off of furniture. I would be hit, struck by things that I couldn't see but could feel on my body. Um, sheer panic and terror come over me, uh, almost as if a sense of impending death, foreboding. Throughout, this would happen on a weekly basis for most of my life up till the age of 25. But it just was, it happened so much that it just, just felt kind of normal. And who do you talk to about that crap? Because people throw you in a psych ward and call you crazy. And um, even pastors, most pastors don't know what to do with that stuff. They they think it's Hollywood stuff. And uh, so anyways, I began to connect it out. Oh crap. I've been dealing with demonic entities and foul spirits my whole life didn't even freaking know it and turns out (laughs) when i was like 30 years old about 30 i'm 43 in this uh, june 26th Uh, so at around the age of 30 my mom tells me her whole some of her family history and a lot of that family history involved heavy witchcraft blood sacrifices um psychics and tarot cards and hard drugs and rituals and all this stuff, dark stuff. And my whole mom's lineage is devastated. I mean, my grandfather died of AIDS. He contracted AIDS through needles, Hmm. right? Uh, Or HIV and then AIDS. So um, her other brother, paraplegic, drove drunk, crashed, paralyzed himself from the neck down. Her other brother stabbed his wife seven times. So I'm like, thanks, mom, for letting me know about my family history at the age of 30. Better late than never. But it, it began, I began to connect the dots like, whoa, there's a real battle, man. There's a real war. And it's not just ideologies. Like, although those are real and do matter, there are real unseen forces pulling strings. And unless you wake up, unless you unless you kind of um, uncork some of your uh, some of your let's 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 call them some of the things you've been taught or some of the <clears throat> the lessons you learned I mean you and I have had the benefit of having traveled overseas a lot and I'll tell you man having it we have a really hard time here in the West understanding spiritual things uh, you go to places I've been and they're like oh yeah, yeah spirit realm yeah they, they think we're uneducated in that mm-hmm. area. Yeah. It's not, it's not a weird 
it's not a weird thing over there. It's not a weird topic. It's, 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 it's like business as usual. Well, so I had to, I'm still, man, I'm still in the process of growing and learning and growing up into maturity. But, um, the, uh, so that, that initial Irish moment with that girl was a huge wake up call that connected dots for me. I imagine. I imagine. And I know that, I know that all those things are real. This is the thing that's, that's kind of bizarre to me is that, you know, I, I, I went wandering through the new age for 20 years in other religious traditions around the world, spirits, we'll call it demons, right? Disembodied conscious beings from another, from, from the spirit realm, let's say they're acknowledged as real. People make sacrifices to them. You know, people like if you go to Bali, at the front door of every shop in Bali, there's a little, there's a, like a banana leaf with flowers in it. Those are offerings to local spirits. There are temples everywhere. These are real things. And people do this because it works. And then you can get into occultism and you can study all of that. And, and they will teach you how to do all that stuff. There are documented processes. Don't study occultism and don't get into that stuff. But all this stuff is very real. and and the the materialist western christian response seems to be yeah no none of that stuff is real it's like oh, what no this is you have to be aware of this stuff now look i don't think that it's everyone's calling to to encounter it or to work with it but certainly you can't say that this stuff doesn't exist and that we're not in some form of spiritual war what is the christian story but cosmic spiritual warfare Right. And, and, and so it manifesting down to the levels of culture and politics on a day-to-day basis. Like you want to talk conspiracy theory, like, yeah, the devil's real and he can, and, and the devil and his armies and his demons can influence humans in the course of human events. Congratulations. Yeah. You're now a conspiracy theorist, like, right. But for, yeah. but for some reason that gets disconnected from every, everyone's everyday experience. Oh, that stuff, that stuff isn't real. That's Hollywood stuff. It's like, no, like other people around the world worship this stuff and, uh-huh. and we can't acknowledge that it's real. And I, I can tell you this stuff is real. Don't uh-huh. go messing with it because there's reality to it. I've had more, more of that kind of encounter here in the United States than I ever have overseas. Right. Um, yeah, but, but uh, I don't know. It, it's not necessarily something we, you know, you, people write whole books on this stuff, but it's not necessarily something that I focus on every day, but it's something right. that I'm aware of, cognizant of. And, and the, let me ask you a question. If somebody gives you, uh, if somebody gives you all the chocolate pie, how much chocolate pie do you have? You have all of it. I have all of it. Right. So Jesus said, I've given you all authority over and people are afraid to touch this stuff because they don't understand what Christ has given them. Mm-hmm. They're afraid to even broach the topic because it feels like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to conjure something or I'm going to, some, something's going to attach itself to me. If I even talk about the, the darkness, if I talk about the demonic and people have a fear, a lot of people, not everybody, but I think that's a huge issue. People don't understand their authority. They don't understand what it means to be, to, to walk walk with Christ in that way. And, um, and so I think there is a lack of revelation and understanding. Uh, and, and that's, that's partially an issue in discipleship. You know, a lot of us haven't been mentored and discipled in that stuff. 
And I think part of it is also um, that there's there have been so many charlatans. That's yes. what I identify it to. Is there are so many people that talk about spiritual warfare, and you know, and and, and then you know they do various hocus pocus and they put on a show and and so that kind of distracts people from the reality because they're so fixated on people who were hypocrites or liars that we lose sight of the people that are very sincere and the stuff that's really the stuff that's really going on. I, I agree with you and, and I but I think people yeah there there there's some legitimacy to why they're afraid to engage with it. Um, yeah. you know, but I think I think it's an over I think it's overcorrection and it actually leads to a degree of of dangerous blindness, especially today, because you look at some of these, just as an example, some of these pride videos, it's like, what are you going to call that? If not demonic blacked out eyes looking like create, like the only word is demonic for that. And, right. and we can't call it what it is for yeah. whatever reason. Well, isn't that, that's interesting though. Well, you know, that's such a great tac- tactical move, right? Uh, if, if I can get a couple of these guys to, embellish and make them look foolish everyone else will think that's crazy talk and will completely throw out the baby with the bathwater it's a total diversion mm-hmm. right just because you've got some some charlatans out there doesn't mean you should throw the baby out with the bathwater this is why we need discernment right right this is why we need that and discernment i think it's twofold. I think it is a spiritual, there's a spiritual discernment where you discern, is this the spirit of God? Is this the spirit of a man? Is this the spirit? Is this a demonic spirit? But then there's also cultivated discernment through trial and error and through lived experience where we, <clears throat> we can test the waters and know this, this person's legit, this person's not, right? And so, yeah, I mean, that's another muscle I think we can, we can strive to cultivate. I think this is tied to the lack of fathers as well, because what is a father's job? One of them is to teach their sons discernment, to teach their children discernment, to say, this is this from that, right from wrong, good from evil. And when you have a gener- you have several generations of fatherlessness or father famine, as I call it, you end up with a, a generation that is afraid to discern even boys from girls and men from women, right? That, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many, there's so much aftermath when it comes to the fatherless epidemic. And that, and absolutely even we're saying discernment, but another way of maybe describing it might be critical thinking. Like Mm -hmm. when I watch TV with my kids, I'm well, I'll pause it and I'll just go, what do you guys think about that? Do you think that's true or false? That's awesome. Why do you, why do you think that? Do you like that? Or do you not like that? Like, why do you say that? And they're always, and they go to a little school and they do a lot of Socratic questioning and there's a lot of debate and it's just all, they, they just hammer these kids with think for yourself, ask good questions. Don't believe everything you're taught. But most kids, most of us didn't get that stuff. Can you give an example of a time where you recently did that and what some of the responses were? This is, this is, I love the thought. I love this thought. Yeah. I mean, dude, <laughs> turn on the TV for 10 minutes. You're going to run into something. It usually revolves yes. around. It usually revolves around same sex nowadays. It's you yes. know, two girls kissing, two boys. And we don't, we don't watch it. Honestly, we don't watch a ton of TV. But, but I have to get them to think about this stuff. And mm-hmm. it's as simple as, okay, that, that man is saying he can have a baby. What do you guys think about that? Mm-hmm. And my, my youngest is eight. She's like, dad, you know, boys can't have babies. You know, so it's just, it, I want to expose them in a, in a controlled setting where 
we can have authentic, honest conversation. It, it's not dogmatic, but it is, it is loving and it is educated. And the girl, I want them to question, do they live in the world just like we do? So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's typically what it revolves around. It's the sexual indoctrination that is happening is, is really hard to avoid. Oh, it's, it's impossible. I can't imagine trying to navigate a landscape, a media environment. That's the point, right? The point is to saturate it with all these values and so that everyone ultimately, whether, whatever their level of revulsion is to it, they just accept it as normal because so many people are consensus oriented. It's like, well, this just seems to be the way of the world right now. And so, you know, who am I to say? That's something that I've been reflecting on lately is, um, is just how many, how many um, baby boomer fathers didn't feel like they had anything to teach their, to teach their sons or to teach their kids. Like, well, who am I to say? You have to find your values for yourself. This hyper-individualism that took place and, oh. and, and the fruits of that now are, are people being unwilling and in many ways un, unable to discern their values and resistant to any values coming in, coming in and telling them what's going on. Like this myth of the neutral public square, for example, well, you step into the neutral public square and you try on a bunch of different ideologies and you know, then you choose from there. It's like, no, that itself is an ideology. This idea that, you know, this idea that you disciple kids to figure things out for themselves, they'll be catechized by something, right? Uh-huh. Which is why, again, you need fathers to come in and, and help the kids discern not for themselves, right? Or right. you train them to discern for themselves. Yeah, we, we even take it a step further. Like I try to, we do this periodically. I don't want to make it sound like it's a weekly discipline. But right, right, right. We do it enough to where the kids are kind of used to it, where I will intentionally bully them. Like, and it's a game, it's a game. It's like, I'll call them a name and we're doing it as a family. Like it's all staged. They know that mm. I'm calling them fat. I'm calling them stupid. This will sound horrible if this is a soundbite, but um, Done. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to expose them to what they're going to run into in school and what they're going to run into with their neighborhood friends. And, 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 and they have to, we work on how they, how they um, defend themselves and, how they would respond and what, what love looks like in a moment like that and what self-defense looks like in a moment like that. And, you know, we, we have fun with it, but I want to, I'm trying to train them in emotional resilience. So they aren't, they aren't at the, they aren't easily to manipulate. Right. Right. Uh, and, And to be fair, we do, we are very on top of who we let our kids hang out with, but, I'm a realist, man. No, no matter how, how good your parenting is, your kids have to live in this world. So we, we do intentionally try to prep them. And I think that is uh, a, a, a positive skill to develop in your children. Now, were these things that you and your wife have developed together, that like you figured them out for yourselves, or are things that were passed down to you from your parents or her parents or things that you picked up in books? I've never heard of anything like this. Like, you know, you test bully your kids to see how they respond to, to pressure like that. Like what an incredible insight. And, you know, let's just put the TV on pause right now and let's just talk about what just happened. Like that sort of engaged level of parenting is, it's really inspiring actually. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not dad of the year or anything. It's periodic, but it's, uh, <laughs> right. it, it's usually like spur of the moment at the dinner table. I'm like, Hey, this is a great moment. Oh, that happened at school. Let's, let's create a scenario. And, and, um, I, they're not, <laughs> my kids are kids, right? So they're not always going to get it right. But, but the truth is that emotional resilience and that ability to maintain self-control and composure 
<clears throat> and to not be intimidated by false accusations or slander. You know, having siblings is, is a great practice ground. I mean, there's four of them. So we get to, we get all kinds of scenarios. I'm, this kid's the bully, this kid's the, the helpless classmate, and this kid's the, so it's a fun, it's a fun mm-hmm. exercise. I think that's really cool because that's that's the kind of things that kids are gonna gonna run into, and you want to have them armed and prepared for that level of difficult social interaction, not just for that stage in their life, but f- going forward. Because we all you know live in the world, you're gonna run into you're gonna run into a bully, you're gonna run into someone who's gonna mistreat you, and you have to know uh, how to respond to that in a right way that that does two things: that pushes the bully off. And that keeps you within integrity. And that's, okay. that, that's, I wish I had had that growing up. Hey man, I'm kind of just winging it. My parents didn't do that with me. So I, it's like, all right, I think this would work. Let's try this, you know? And that's some of parenting is you hope it's, you hope it's helpful, but so far so good. So let's go back to, let's go back to uh, Ireland where you're doing this paranormal with this, uh, this paranormal event with this, I think you said she was a Palestinian girl. Uh-huh. This, this was still in Ireland, right? So, let, so run us, run the story forward from there. This, this is, you're still probably what in your, in your early twenties, you're overseas, yeah. you're still, yeah. So run us. Okay. Oh, okay. So this is relatively soon after you got to Ireland, Ireland. this has been the first you know couple of years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's probably the first six months. So, so the, in, the interesting part of this is like, I know, not the end of the story. I know the current stage of the story is in right now, you know, psychotherapist, father for living in Florida. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know the journey from that particular moment to here. And I, I think we'll address it in stages, but so what happened after that, you get introduced to this notion of like, no, this, the demonic spiritual warfare, you know, possession, oppression, demonic oppression. These are, these are real things. What's going on for you in that moment? Yeah. I, you know, that, Although that was a, it, it was profound in the sense that, okay, there is a war and there's a battle. And unless you engage the battle, you don't win. <laughs> um, it's like you can be neutered. You know, if you put your head in the sand, then you're just kind of a non-player, mm-hmm. right? So it just woke me up to the reality of things. And like the battle that's at hand is the battle for my faith the battle for my marriage, the battle for my children, the battle for my friends and my relationships with them, the battle for people that I'm meeting that have no, that don't understand they're in a war. They're just living their life and working their job and don't understand that the enemy literally does come to steal, kill and destroy. And he will do so because, you know, there's the scripture that says um, the people perish for lack of revelation. Mm-hmm. The people today people literally there are i've been in pockets in africa where they drink contaminated water and they die and they're not aware that it's contaminated eventually they do learn because 10 members of the tribe have died but they're just not aware and it takes them out and a lot of christians although this is i would say personal personal perspective a lot of christians will they will uh they are, they have come into the kingdom. <clears throat> it's it, they've joined the tribe, but they have not they have not understood their their role, and they have not understood 
their function and they're not um <clears throat> they're not releasing the kingdom of god on planet earth they're just basically in survival mode like mm. okay good i made it like i made it on the team right and to me salvation's just the beginning <laughs> right that's the entry point that's dude you got the contract on the team love having you now let's let's walk right and um and you know and we're all in that process of development so i <clears throat> man you know part of the you're in this battle too like right now one of the biggest battles is just to maintain your faith to keep your faith intact and on fire in a world that is consumed with apathy and entertainment and decadence to just keep your heart alive to God right now is a battle that a lot of people are losing. I mean, there like, there are plenty of ways to do that. I'm right. Right. this town, keep your heart alive to God, because I, I guess, yes, a lot of people are losing. And I think for me, the bigger challenge is not that there's a world that, uh, creates apathy, though that is also true. I think that there are forces within the Christian faith that do the same thing. You know, the, cult, the, 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 the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice, right? This idea like we, all respect to John MacArthur, we lose down here, right? His, his quote from a couple of weeks ago. There, and, and, the, and I think a lot of the pushback against the whole notion of Christian nationalism kind of root, roots in the same kind of space where it's like, if I'm truly alive and on fire for God, then I want to carry that forward into all aspects of my life. I want to carry it forward into my business. I want to carry it forward into my politics. I want to carry it forward into my workplace. I want to carry it forward into my kitchen. I want to carry it forward, as Eric Kahn and I talked about, into the bedroom. All these things, they all fit. And it just seems like you use the word neutering. And I think that there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of that within, within Christianity today that just seeks to neuter men I don't know, and and I guess spay women, I don't know. But in the same kind of way, <laughs> right? There's a way in which it just cuts people off at the knees for wanting to express their faith, not just in culture. I mean, culture is going off the edge of a cliff. You know, like, like who are you to say that I shouldn't be speaking up about Christianity? Like, you're literally insane. But it's within, <laughs> the, it's within the Christian camp that drives me the most nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, dude. You're right. I mean, we've lost our fight in the yeah. sense of psychologically, we, we, the, the fighter, you know, Rocky in Rocky, I think it's, is it Rocky two? His trainer says the worst thing happened to you that it could ever happen to any fighter. You lost, you lost your fight. Yeah. Right. And you're right. That's what we mean by neutered. That's what we mean by the effeminate masculinity and, and getting that fight back, man. Oftentimes, I think one of the first places to start is just to start to do it physically. Yep. Just to start with the body, but but then you got to work on the mind, man. You got to what is it? What does it mean? And that's what you're doing with Renaissance of Man, partially. But um, what does it mean to be the protector? Your First Corinthians, love always protects. Well, if you're going to protect someone or something, you're going to have to learn how to protect it. In order to protect, you have to have competence and ability to protect it. Otherwise, you're just delusional. So, I mean, I, yes, I, uh, I'm passionate about 
seeing men get their fight back, fighting for their marriage, fighting for their health, fighting for the initial, you know, in Revelation, Jesus, uh, Jesus is addressing one of the churches. He says, you lost, like, you lost your first love. Return to the first things. Well, so they lost their, they lost their fire. Return to the original. Return to the first things. And unless you fight for this faith, man, unless you fight for uh, the, the deposits God has put inside of you, you will lose. You will, they will grow dim. All fires grow dim if you don't feed them. You shouldn't be shocked that you've grown passive and apathetic about your faith when you don't feed the fire. You don't, you actually don't rub shoulders with any men of faith. You don't, you don't ever actually spend quality time with the scriptures alone. You don't actually listen to content that feeds your spirit. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't do the things that every man of faith from every generation has always done. You don't fast. If, if you want to be like that, those guys, you got to do what those guys do. And, but, you know, we're just guilty, man. And I'm, I'm riffing here, but we're just so guilty of consuming content. <clears throat> and that, that, sati- that satisfies something in us, thinking that, that, we, got, we, that we got something. Uh, how do I say it? We will consume content and mistake mistake that for revelation it's kind of like um mm-hmm. think about it like this when a when a bull i think it's bulls bulls will masticate they'll chew things and spit it up and then chew it again mm-hmm. right yeah cud um cud right when a man a, a podcast like yourself or a, a preacher or wh- whoever it is they've chewed on content in revelation and they teach it and it's good and we should consume it but you must then, whatever you get, you then have to chew on it, consume it, wrestle with it, test it, <laughs> chew on it, swallow it, spit it up again, chew on it again. There's a process where we contend for ourselves. It's not secondhand food. So whatever you're giving out to, to thousands of men across the earth with Renaissance of Men, every listener is responsible to chew it, contend with it, wrestle with it. Um, you know, and, and then swallow it. It otherwise, it's in one ear and out the other. I really appreciate you saying that because because I'm aware that the content that I create, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you can just pass over. You know, it, it require it demands attention and thoughtfulness, and that's just that's just what I do. Um, and and I, I I appreciate the people who listen to this podcast because they they engage with what you're saying, the people who engage with the content I produce, whether it be on Twitter or YouTube, whatever, is that they, they want to engage thoughtfully with these ideas. They want, they want to be challenged by them. They invite the challenge. They invite the discussions that open doors into, you know, into uh, sensitive topics. And, and I believe that they, they want the opportunity to really chew on something meaty. In fact, I know, I know that that's the case. So I, I appreciate you saying that because I think that that's where a lot of people's fiery faith can come from, especially when we live in an age where so much wants to numb us, whether it be our, our food or our media or social media, you know, it's all, it's all so, it's all so numbing. Everything is so comfortable. And it's easy to just kind of drift away versus like someone grabbing you with whatever, with an idea or something like that and shaking you and like, Hey, wake up. You got to think about this. That level of confrontation is really important, especially spiritually. 
especially spiritually. Because again, I'm putting all the pieces together from the Christian church showing up, you know, relatively, relatively late in the game, right? Definitely late in the game. And I'm trying to figure out like, how did, how did American Christians get here? And it's that same spirit of comfort, of ease. You know, you go to the, you go to the rock concert church where, you know, the, the worship washes over you. And it's like, are you actually being fed by that? Are you having an emotional experience that leaves you blissful later, but not awake and alive to the, to the word, right? And I think there's been so much of, I think there's been so much of that, that you're highlighting the need for men and women to really thoughtfully engage almost forcibly with their faith, right? Like you don't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily have to mean, could be, mean confronting other people, but really engage with the word, really engage with content that, you know, particularly people who are very thoughtful really and, and really broad-minded. Like, that's why I like Doug Wilson. That's why I like what the guys in Moscow do. That's why I like Jeff Durbin, my pastor, is like, here's stuff that's designed to challenge you, that's meant to be theological heavy lifting, and then you make it touch ground in your life. That's, I think that's where men can find so much of the fire of what they're, of what they're looking for in terms of faith. Would you agree? I, I love that. Would you agree, Will? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an era of entertainment, distraction, comfort, leisure, decadence, right? So much coming at us, like so much, man. And I would say a spiritual discipline that would help all of your listeners is solitude and silence. Mm-hmm. And which means, which is really hard, which means putting away the electronics for pockets during the week and during those times just getting silent before God. And I, I'm not one of those guys that can, I don't like to sit. I'll go walk in the woods, but without mm-hmm. technology. And it, it's just like, God, I'm just open. Um, I, I don't, I don't need, I don't have an agenda here. I don't need to tell you anything or ask for anything. I just, but just to recalibrate, recenter, and just ask for the, the, the spirit of God, just to help you absorb even some of the content you did receive. Right. Um, and man, I, that's a, that is a priceless discipline that most people don't do. Uh, and I would say because we're in it, we don't, for most of human history, this was not the case. You didn't have the, the level of technology thrown at you like we do now. There have always been distractions, but now uh, one of the ways you do warfare is getting alone with God, is mm-hmm. recalibrating with God. and. That means shutting things down, man. Uh, so the woods is my the woods and the beach are, are my kind of go to. Uh, I, I can always get better at it, but I would say it is crucial for us right now in the times we're living. We have to practice that discipline. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, Matt Reynolds was on a month or so ago, and he was t- from from Barbell Logic, and he was talking about voluntary hardship. And you know, the the conversation about voluntary hardship with men usually resolves to go to the gym and there's nothing wrong with that. Barbell training, for example, combat sports is another one. But you know, the voluntary hardship can take so many other forms. It could take the voluntary hardship of read a really difficult book. It can take the voluntary hardship of, again, you turn your phone off for a couple of days, go for a walk, delete, the, delete apps from your phone. You mentioned fasting. I'm actually in the middle of fasting right now. It's, been, it's coming up on three days at this point. So, so it's like it's something that I like to do um, 
periodically that I'd like to do a couple times a year because it's really good for me and physically, oh. mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all, all of that. And that's just easy ways to engage with voluntary hardship, but to do it in a faith-centric way, right? Like you can, you can engage in voluntary hardship, you know, in a, in a way that isn't faith-centric, but if you make your faith the, you know, a cornerstone of it, if he's like, I'm going to go have an encounter with the word or have an encounter with God or, or really get into prayer, those sorts of things can really light you on fire if you as a man or woman, for that matter, have the courage to engage with it to that degree. But everything in our culture kind of incentivizes us against it. Oh, I've got too much to do, or, oh, maybe that's dangerous, or maybe someone will think I'm weird or whatever. It's like, no, you actually, you need that voluntary hardship because, because as you rightly pointed out, we live in an era of human history where it's easier than ever, and we're not, we're not familiar with it for good reason. It's, it's hard. I don't want to make it sound like I'm the grandmaster, but I, I will tell you, man, it is, I, you know, there's a verse, I think it's in Corinthians, it says, um, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And when you're so consumed with entertainment, distraction, and, and just the, the busyness of the world, you, you voluntarily give away your peace to those things. You have to detach from those things at certain times in order to get back in touch with the peace that is available. The peace isn't just a ethereal concept. Peace is a person, the prince of peace, right? So it's like, you know, you, we all have friends. You, you have a friend who's just always stressed out. You hang out with that friend and you're just like, dude, I'm kind of stressed out, right? You have a friend mm-hmm. who's always frenetic and busy. You're like, man, I just don't feel very peaceful around that person. But then you have a friend who's very just peaceful and, and a pleasure to be around and maybe stoic to a degree. And you're, they're just, it's just easy. Right. And, and so the, the, the analogy breaks down, but when we get around the Prince of peace, it's, you shouldn't be surprised that you do have more intrinsic internal peace, mm-hmm. but that, that has to be, you have to make calculated efforts to do that because it doesn't happen by accident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to, you need to create the space for intentional peace to be part of your life. And again, maybe that's part of the numbing aspects of our reality is not only is it, is it numbing, but it's also overwhelming. It's so hard to get just real quiet time. And it takes time to let the noise settle. It takes more than a few minutes. Like you can't, you, maybe you can meditate for a few minutes, but like it really takes you know, two or three days camping in the woods with no signal for the level of noise to really, to uh-huh. really die down almost uh-huh. to the point where like, if you could take seven days, you know, take a couple days to, you know, to let the noise level die down, take two or three days, if you can, in the woods to just be there, be alone with God, and then take a little bit of time to ramp back up into the world, you know, so you don't go crashing back into the, into the noise field. Like that could be a real spiritual a real spiritual discipline, like retreat in the truest sense of the word. I'm with you, man. I'm actually doing a trip to the Tetons next month. It's going to be rucking through the Tetons for four to five days. And it's, you don't get signal up there. And it's just exactly what you're describing. You, you lead the men. Now let's, let's talk about your, let's talk about your primal course, because this is a, this is something that you lead, lead, other men through and that you've done you've done several of these like you've done what five six ten of these 
Yeah. I mean, I've been doing that kind of thing for a long time beyond that, but in this particular area, in this particular way, yeah, it's been, we're on about a year and a half now. Almost pushing. Yeah. A little over a year and a half. Yeah. Close to two. Mm-hmm. So, so, so yeah, uh, I can, yeah, I can. Um, well, do you have a particular question about it? Well, I mean, like, you know, we're talking about a lot of different, a lot of different um, themes that I think really fit together in this, in this idea of of the primal course, we're talking about, you know, encounter with encouraging male figures. We're talking about retreat. We're talking about voluntary hardship. We're talking about, we're talking about faith. Like, I think all these things that I, I mentioned initiation, like all these things, one of the questions that I sit with is like, okay, so, so what do we do with all of this as men, right? It's one thing to consume content about it. Great. It's another thing to, you know, it's another thing to, to think hard about it, but to actually create an experience for men to be able to put these ideas into practice. I mean, that's a, that's a significant thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I, I guess the, one of the re, one of the main reasons I'm probably doing this today is because I spent years and years and years cutting my teeth in treatment centers mm-hmm. with addicts locally here in South Florida. And so running countless hours, thousands of hours of group therapy with men and just beginning to notice what caused them to tune out, what caused them to tune in, what, what was really, what really caused them to connect and to organically meld and what, what provoked distance and detachment and just through trial and error, man, learning that stuff. But then also, man, I, I've, I've been a client myself. I've been in group therapy. I've done therapy and just mm-hmm. noticing what I liked, what I didn't like. And, um, and, and then also having had the experience of training with guys in the army and then playing with high level tribe, soccer tribes my whole life. And just the mixture there that, that I was privy to. And so, um, I wanted to create something that I would want to attend that didn't feel cheesy but was also deeply challenging psychologically, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And, but, but I'm very sensitive to cheese, cheesy. Mm. Like I, I can't do, I can't do hype. I can't do, I can't do it. I just can't do hype, man. So um, what can we, what can we build to make it real and, and transformative? And so the, I guess one of the taglines I always like to use is, information informs experience transforms. Mm -hmm. So what would it look like to give man a genuine rite of passage experience uh, that involved, you know, body, soul, and spirit. So uh, this section in the Blue Ridge is a place I've been rocking through and hiking for years and just always been a magical place for me and my family. I know those, those routes really well and just had a profound effect on me personally. So that, that I just, that's why I decided to utilize that spot. But the, the course, I, w- I wanted it to focus on a few things. Um, I wanted there to be a hard skill component where guys walk around, walk away having learned some hard skills. So we do some survival, survival training, basic fire starting, or not basic, some of it's complicated, but fire starting, shelter building, not tying, uh, the, how to handle oneself when you're lost in the wilderness. What do you, what are you going to do? Um, we, we teach mental toughness, confidence. We teach facing fear, which everybody can relate to that. How are you going to handle panic? How are you going to handle fear? How are you going to handle your worry and your anxiety when you go back home? 
we, we do it in a small setting. So I usually cap it at 10 to 12 guys and I split, I split those guys into two squads and they compete against one another all weekend. So there's a sense of heightened, you know, anytime, anytime you, you throw competition into the mix, it, it, it amplifies things. Uh, there are winners, there are losers. Uh, there's close instruction. The guys get to rub shoulders with all the instructors the entire weekend. You don't get very much sleep. So uh, you're going to come, don't, don't, <laughs> don't come thinking you're going to sleep a lot. You're going to leave physically exhausted, but your soul will be rejuvenated. And in the process, you've gained a bunch of brothers. You've learned some hard skills. You've summited some epic mountains that are at times a grind. Uh, it, I consistently hear from men, this is a lot harder than I thought it would be physically, uh, which, is, which is great because I want guys to walk away feeling in their body, I went through something. And one of the, one of the big components in a, in a rite of passage experience in, in my view, um, you, you can't actually have a rite of passage experience you, unless there are gatekeepers, unless mm-hmm. there are men or elders who have been through that fire before, and they're the ones that give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down once you go through the crucible, right? And, and they obviously want to see you succeed, and they're guiding you and helping you, but, um, but when it comes to rite of passage, you can't self-initiate. You can't mm-hmm. just claim that you are now initiated because you did X, Y, and Z. And, and a lot of guys think they can do that, but that's just because we've just, in our culture, we've just lost it, entirely lost the, the concept of the rite of passage, the need for the rite of passage, what that even looks like. So my intention is to build men through the process. And, and my, my way of doing it is unique. I, I try to, the way you and I are, talking about God and about life and relationships. It's, it's very practical stuff. Uh, but for a lot of guys, that's, that's unusual. Um, this isn't, this isn't a retreat. This isn't a church retreat. This is, it's pretty hardcore and I love doing it, man. I'm always really moved, man. Like it's, it hits me pretty, it hits me hard when the guys leave because you've bonded so deeply over a short period of time. Uh, but from that point, everybody's connected. We're all networked and, and, and it's, uh, it's growing, it's growing every month, but, um, that's the, that's the quick and dirty for the primal course. That's awesome, man. I love how you said that you can't self-initiate because I, I believe that like there's a, there's a component, there's a, a vital component of ritual to initiation and to masculinity in general that I think is not so well appreciated. I was talking to someone about this recently, but I don't remember who, you know, about this idea that you have to undergo to initiate to be properly initiated it needs to be treated like a sacred process now that can look all different kinds of ways it doesn't have to be torches or chanting it doesn't have to be anything like that but you acknowledge that you're participating in something that has a lineage that you're entering into this space that we're all sharing and that's the space the imaginal space is where the initiation is happening you can't do that on your own. The space needs to be held or the space needs to be cultivated by men of honor, men of renown to hold that and to invite the, the, the young men or boys into it. And so when they leave, they are then men, right? That's such an essential part of it. And I, I think it's, it's built into us. It's part of us. It's 
part of our part of our our souls even perhaps and you can't just do it on your own i think a military tri- the military fraternities they do something similar i think they borrow from some some of the aspects but they're they're not initiating you necessarily into some virtuous aspect of of manhood you know they're they're initiating you and you could you could speak to this from your time in the military they're initiating you into something very different but and and so men go to these organizations looking for that same thing that's on offer but the idea of being initiated into virtuous manhood is very very different and it's a problem that that I think a lot of men recognize needs solving and I guess it I guess you just have to do it you just have to leap into it and and try it out and cultivate it as you go to create those opportunities for men to have it, because I don't know how we're going to get by without it. Churches don't offer it. I was I was technically initiated as, as growing up Jewish. My bar mitzvah is supposed to be an initiation. I wouldn't say that I walked out of that experience feeling like a man. So yeah. these 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 ideas of voluntary uh, ritualized hardship, I think, is so important for men to experience. There's absolutely will. I'm with you on that. I, there, the other component here that. I, I don't think we have a good grip on men just don't we don't know how to admit that we need validation. Yeah. We, we don't you know it it seems like weakness for a lot of guys. And and, and it's really not. Like case in point, I tell this story all the time. A couple of years back, I'm 40 I'm about to be 43. This was only like a year and a half ago. I had an old professor that I hadn't seen for like 10 years. And we ran into each other. He invited me to one of his lectures. He was at a conference where, so I was like, yeah, I'd love to come. And I really looked up to this guy, brilliant guy, really good at his craft. And I went to the lecture. He said, he texted me or called me the day before. He was like, hey, why don't we get breakfast before the lecture? I'd just like to catch up. I was like, yeah, man, this would be great. So I, I came, met, met up with him. We had a great breakfast, had a great time, went to the lecture. He crushed it. It was awesome. And at the end, he made sure to come over to me. Before I left, and he was like, "Hey, man!" He he just shook my hand, looked me eye to eye, said, "Hey, I just want you to know, I had a really good time at breakfast with you. Like, I had a gr- that was a great conversation. I would love to have you and your wife over to my house with my wife. We'd love to cook you dinner, man. That I, I want to keep this going, hmm. right? And in that moment, I, I didn't show it, but in that moment, I, someone that I esteemed esteemed me." Mm. And um, I think it was Tolkien who said uh, something to the effect of the praise of the praise worthy is above all rewards. Mm-hmm. Praise of the praise worthy is above all. And I didn't, I didn't even know I needed that, but it just felt so good to be validated by someone that I st- esteemed, respected, looked up to, and and even would would like to mimic, right? So I didn't know I needed it. And I think we just get busy in life and we don't, we, we have our accomplishments, especially guys who have, who, who are well, who are fairly well established. They, they've got that they're an entrepreneur or they've got their, they've made, they've made a certain amount of money or, or they've crushed it athletically or, or they've got the wife and the kids or whatever, whatever sense of success they have, they, they don't actually know that you you're you're never gonna not need masculine validation. It's it's mm-hmm. it's never just gonna go away. It's not weakness. It's not weird. 
it's it's normal and we need to get it periodically or consistently from the right from the right men esteemable men that you know gatekeepers gatekeeper type men who are walking this thing out and so man you know like i that's something we try to give too is we want to push the guys in our in our course and and you know we're not we're not giving participation trophies like you have to earn it but when you know once you do like it the validation is there and that that's hard to articulate but it's a really special component i'm so glad you said that it's so true it's so true that that you know one of the functions of the king um i want to say this is from king warrior magician lover by douglas by robert moore and douglas Gillette, but i'm not sure certainly i i was talking about it with my with my mentor glenn recently is you know one of the functions of the king was that he would just go and travel around his lands right in 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 whatever like his his chariot right and and people would and they still do this in 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 the UK i was i was there for it when when I was a queen just looking for a glimpse of the king to make eye contact with them and to smile at them right he doesn't have to get down from his chariot even just to give the blessing of his approval right just to to tour his lands and see that they are good that function is so important for men to not only uh cultivate in themselves to offer to their sons or their employees or the men of their group or their community but for men to experience themselves it's like it's like food men will go for long periods of time on just a small amount of, of validation from an esteemable uh, an esteemed man or also a woman that's another thing like when a woman gives a man a compliment real appreciation by the way just just as an aside I'm I'm taking a a bunch of courses with Alison Armstrong right now and she does she distinguishes between acknowledgement and appreciation and those are two different things. So when you give someone when you give someone a gift you uh you can't just say thank you so much for the gift. You have to you have to um you acknowledge, "Hey, thank you so much for this lovely gift that you gave me," which is acknowledging the gift. And then you say, I really appreciated this about it. I really like this about it. And that acknowledgement and appreciation, those two things together create the, the feeling of, of validation. So the same with men. You acknowledge what the man does, and then you show him appreciation for it. Like, like, uh, like this guy that you had dinner with. I really enjoyed that conversation we had, acknowledging the conversation, and then I want to have you over to continue it. That's the appreciation. So many men get none of that in their lives. They have no, they wouldn't even know where to go to ask for something like that. And maybe there's a component of men starving for that level of validation. They don't need to pour it down on them all the time. It's not out of insecurity. It's like, am I doing anything right? There's that component to it also. Yeah. It's a, we, I don't, I don't quite understand it, but like I said, a lot of men don't even know that they need it. And I think a lot of men interpret that as weakness. Like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need, I don't need anybody. I don't need any attaboys. Yep. She is, you know, like hustle, hustle culture. Right. I, right. And, and I, to a degree, I, I do appreciate aspects of hustle culture and grind. I'm, I'm a great guy for sure. But man, like having grown up with a father who, who just validated me on, almost on a daily basis, uh, I, I have a, I, I sense a duty 
to give that away because of what I've received, you know? And mm-hmm. so um, it's always a, it's always an interesting dynamic, man. We, we pray, we pray on the guys. Like we, we, I pray about who's coming. I don't just randomly allow guys to come. Like they apply and then I'm like, is this the right guy for this team? Mm-hmm. Is this the right guy for this, for this moment? And just trusting, I trust God that he'll, he brings the right guys at the right time. And I had one guy that had to pull out twice and then was eventually able to come to the a third one. So, um, I'm working with a guy right now who he's supposed to be there. I have to get on the phone with the judge on Friday because this guy has a record from mm. something that happened years ago. I think judges agreed to meet with me to give him permission to leave the state to get up there so he can come. So, oh, wow. Uh, and I'm hoping it goes well. I think it will. But uh, that, you know, we're, like I said, it's strategic. I want, to, I want the right guys there. Everybody who's there is hungry. And that right there is a magic. You get a group of guys who are hungry, man, that's, that's like magic sauce, you know? So, and you don't find that everywhere, man. Right. You got to create the environment for that hunger. If to get the, I need this. Like that was one of the things about the mankind project, which was the men's initiation that I went through. Gosh, coming up on 10 years ago, actually. Um, literally 10 year anniversary in September um, where the men who were there fell into one of two categories. There were men like me that were engaged in personal development stuff just because it's what they like to do. Like I enjoyed doing personal development stuff, but there were also men that of all, of all different ages, literally from like early twenties into their seventies that were in varying degrees of, of kind of rock bottom, Right. You know, third marriages or alcoholism or or whatever, all different kinds, you know, maybe in trouble with their families, getting kicked out. I mean, the, the spectrum, right? But the thing that these men had in common, whether they were at rock bottom or just making progress on a on a on a an average or less than average life, is that um they were all hungry. You know, they and they and they were hungry for different reasons, but they all had this feeling like, no, I I I need what's contained in here. And, and the willingness to say that about yourself. I need more than what I've got. And the only person who can give it to me is me by taking a risk, right? That's, that's, that's the adventure. That's the, that's the very nature of the adventure. I like that you said that. I wish more guys could grab onto that. that there's a risk component you took. Every guy there took, took a risk. And uh, even if the risk was just getting open about your junk and whatever was going on in your life, it was in that moment, I'm sure that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's something a lot of guys won't do. It just will not go there. And so they stay stunted, man. So uh, I know that you, you work now as a, as a psychotherapist, uh, working with both men and women. So you must see plenty of that. Certainly I've been in the, I've been on, on the receiving end of the therapist chair. That's why I got into this work is that that's the direction I thought I was going. I, I wouldn't want to get certified as a therapist today just because I think the, the certifying bodies are all captured by woke. That's another conversation, but you must see a lot of this, you know, where people are, you know, very stunted in their own desire to take risks and, and within their own limitations that they impose on themselves. Absolutely. The degree to which you are willing to face your fears 
will determine your ceiling in life. Mm-hmm. The degree to which you're willing to face down your wounds will also determine your ceiling in life. I mean, whatever pain you're not really working through, you're just going to transmit to those around you. And, and then you're going to think it's their fault. You know, it's almost like metaphorically, bro, we're all like this. We don't see our own stuff, man. They're called blind spots. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like if you could visualize having 10,000 porcupine spikes on your body <laughs> and you're, you're spiking other people and they're having responses to you and you think they're just having weird responses. You don't understand you have spikes, you have rough edges or whatever. And, <clears throat> and so, yeah, that, that's oftentimes what does drive people into therapy is, Hey man, this hasn't been working for me. Like I've been hitting these walls or I'm in this trench here. I, I need some assistance. And I think one of the, one of the things I try to do different in my County, uh, most of the people, <clears throat> I mean, I gotta be careful how I say this for therapists who are listening, but a lot of therapy, a lot of therapists are taught to just be good listeners and be empathetic which is good and true. We should listen and be empathetic. Uh, but they, they don't know how to strategically confront and to guide. Amen. And how to, and how to challenge. You know, even, even to risk someone not coming back. Mm-hmm. If you don't need the money and if you don't give a, two rips about your reputation, you can be a good therapist. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if I don't need your money, then then I can actually speak the truth to you, right? And I don't like I don't look at my clients as a revenue source. I look at God. God is my provider, and uh, He's going to provide for me in a million different ways. And so I can speak the truth to you. And if I see a spike, we need to talk about it, yes. right? And and I don't know about you, man, but we I think we we've all had experiences in life where we were talking ourselves into a hole. We're just digging the trench deeper and deeper. We were tired. Our emotions were inflamed. And you were thinking, we're not thinking rationally. We're just digging ourselves into a deeper pit. And you need someone to chime in and and redirect you, right? And and, I mean, we've all had that experience. And so that's, that's, I probably lean more into, hey, uh, coaching, guiding, healthy confrontation. Let's deal with this awkward thing. That seems to be tripping you up, and uh, you know, and and for the most part, man, it's it's a it's a beautiful experience. Uh, but I can sense more and more, more and more, I'm leaning into the experiential group stuff, uh, the mm-hmm. trainings, the the primal course. I've got another, I've got an eight week rite of passage here locally, and other other stuff I'm building out. I just sense that I'm I'm wanting to put more and more energy into that right now in this season of life, but, but I'll always to a degree do one-on-ones, even if it's a only five people a week or whatever. Hi everyone. And welcome back for a surprise episode of Will Reforms His Coffee. Yes. Yes. I know I said we'd wrap it up last week. And when I said it, I meant it, but one week on, I wanted to offer you an epilogue to the experience. So I closed last week saying that the thing that excited me most about having successfully reformed my coffee is the opportunity to get better over time. And in the weeks since saying that, something special has happened. For some context, remember how I mentioned at the beginning of this series that I'm a slow starter? 
Not because I'm bad at learning, but because I ask so many questions. I get wrapped up in little things like, why is it called a Hario V60 dripper? Had they tried 59 other versions? The answer to that question has absolutely nothing to do with making a good cup of coffee. They could call it a spaghetti penguin dripper and the result would be the same. So in short, I don't just wonder about what to do, but why to do it that way, which is what makes learning from YouTube, PDFs, and books so frustrating for me. They can't answer my countless questions, but eventually I learn enough to have my own answers, or at least provisional ones, then I really get going. Now, it turns out that making pour-over coffee is a complex process despite its seeming simplicity. Countless videos argue over grind size, water-to-coffee ratios, water temperature, pour timings, whether to stir or not stir, and even the total time of the process. Pouring over is literally the only part that people agree on. But after almost a month of daily pouring, I can say, not only is it starting to click, I'm starting to get better at it. The cups of coffee are tasting objectively better. I'm learning when they taste bad, which happened this morning, and I'm beginning to get a sense of what techniques work for me and what don't. Plus, I can confidently experiment with other recipes as well and understand the logic behind them. And here's the most exciting part. I don't even think about my French press anymore. My pour over has become an inextricable part of my day. Give a man a pour over cup and he'll drink coffee for a morning, but teach a man to make pour over and he'll drink coffee for a lifetime. I thought it was important to share that final step of Will Reforms' coffee and let you know that I didn't just make it to the far shore. I've set up camp and built a fire too. And as I say in New Zealand, can I interest you in a cuppa? I recommend my podcast sponsor, Reformation Coffee, that inspired this adventure. I've been enjoying their Guatemala and India roasts, and I'm looking forward to trying their Ethiopian and Brazilian as well. I hosted their founder, Brandon Lansdowne, on my podcast last week, and we talked about various coffee growing and roasting techniques, so you can check that out. Or you can sip along with us by going to reformationcoffee.com and entering the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your new subscription, whether that be weekly, bi-weekly, or even monthly. They want to help you and your church reform your coffee, like they've reformed mine. So I hope you'll join in to the nationwide movement to make Reformation Coffee your roaster of choice. So again, go to reformationcoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your new subscription. And if you want to get into pour-over coffee, email me anytime at info at renofmen.com, and I'm happy to answer questions to help you get started. Oh, and for the record, it's called a V60 dripper because the dripper walls are at a 60-degree angle. Have I mentioned that I crush at trivia nights? And now, back to the show. I'm thank you for saying all of that, particularly about therapists, because the th- I've given a lot of thought to this and that's lit- like what you articulate is literally why I do what I do. It's like, because a therapist is taught to listen and be an empathetic listener with the notion that if you just say, confess or share the things that hurt, they will heal. And then good, congratulations, you've made it. And, and the problem with that is it just assumes that people are these blank slates, that particularly men and women are the same, and it biases towards the, f- the feminine because our so- whole society is feminine biased. So the idea, so, so the extent of a therapist's responsibility, again, very needed, 
is to help pull out the things. This is a modern conception of therapy to help pull out the things that hurt from a man's soul, memories, emotions, stuff like that. Yes, good, fine. But from, but it doesn't end there. Uh-huh. It, it doesn't end there. Like, okay, now that I no longer hurt, what am I going to become? Right. Uh-huh. And, and so many therapists, they don't have a perspective. They're not allowed to have a perspective, right? Uh-huh. Especially with men. It's like, okay, so you get past the point of this hurts, it's gone and no longer hurts. Now I have all this freedom and all this energy to finally become the man that I want to be. Help me become a man. Uh-huh. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know what a man is. Uh-huh. And, and I would never, you know, and, and so many therapists say, I would never tell you to be a man because I believe that being a man is toxic. Right. And so men get, they end up getting the process that could heal them. Okay, it heals them, but it just leaves them in this neutral, benign kind of way. And in the worst case, is it harms them. It gives uh-huh. them this ideology. And so, uh-huh. and so I appreciate you saying that because that's the problem with a the therapeutic endeavor. And that's why I decided not to become a therapist. It's because uh-huh. I can actually sit down with these men who I mentor, and I'm allowed to have a perspective. <laughs> and yeah. I can, right? Not in the sense of like I'm trying to program them to be like me, but their basic principles, many of which are in the Bible, about this is what it means to be a man. And you don't have to listen to me, they're in here. Let's guide you to what you already want to be. And I don't have to pretend some neutral or live neutral because many male therapists are quite effeminate themselves. 100%. You know, I'll speak on about me personally. I don't know about you, but I've discovered over the years, personally, I can access parts. Of, I can only access parts of me when I engage physically and then stuff comes up for me. Hmm. So. I've discovered over the last, I didn't, I couldn't articulate this even 20 years ago, but I've kind of always been like this. Um, I need to be engaged physically uh, before I can almost tap into vulnerability. So um, that's not to be confusing. That's kind of one of the things I, I built out with the primal courses. There is Mm. physical, there's a physical component to break down the body. And then guys have bonded through a challenge. And now that they've bonded through a challenge and their bodies have exerted a certain level of energy, they're now way more inclined. They, they, they've rubbed shoulders with each other. They've overcome obstacles. Now that the, the, the defenses seem to really come down with greater ease rather than trying to um, get to them uh, through a, uh, a targeted conversation per se, which, ha- which does happen, but I've found for me, I have to go that route. And I think a lot of other guys do not, not every guy has to go that route, but I found that helpful for me. So maybe some of you guys listening, like if you want to tap into different parts of who you are, you need to start to engage the physical and man, that could look like a million different things. Ice baths, running, trail running, cycling, boxing, mountain climbing, whatever, man, swimming, whatever you got to do. That is how, those moments, man, when I train like that and then I hang out with my friends, those moments where I train like that and then I have strategic conversations, that's, for me, it seems to work wonders. So whatever that's worth for your guys listening, try that out. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like not every man is verbally actuated like I am. I can, I can talk anything out. Prayer, prayer, fasting, and talking, I can get almost anything out. Not, all, not everything, everything, 
because I've had some very powerful physical experiences. Like I, I, to the extent that a man can, can embody this, there is something to being really confronted with real danger. You know, I tell the story of, of when I was uh, sailing in the South Pacific, you know, when caught in a storm three days out at sea, like that's real danger, <laughs> yeah. right? Now, yeah, I, don't, I don't recommend going for that, but you learn a lot about yourself in that moment, right? Um, yeah. But I can, I can talk my way through things, which was why therapy was really great for me. But I recognize that all men, not all men are as verbal. For those men, they, they need to get into the ring. Like there's that scene in Fight Club, right? Where the, the, one of the early fights the men are doing, where they're just bashing on each other and then the fight ends and then they're hugging and they're crying, you know? <laughs> like there's something, right? There's something to that. There's something to yeah. like, we access things within ourselves that we couldn't get to verbally. And some men de- need that. Or art, you know, cr- creativity, you know, music, all these different ways that we can get into our inner realities. Yep. My way might not be another man's way. And that's the, that's the cool thing, you know, is that once a man discovers there's more, there's more ways to get to your inner reality than just therapy, yep. if, if it's held in the right way, mm-hmm. right? Because you can, you can uh, you know, a couple guys can go climb a mountain and it's just for the sake of climbing a mountain. Right. But if you hold it in a ritualized way, like the point of this is to be physically challenged so that you encounter your inner stuff, totally different experience. Same guys, same mountain, different intention, different result. Yes, that's beautifully put, man. It it made me think about, you know, like, okay, so you and I, different backgrounds, we even talk differently, right? Yeah. Um, we connect on a lot of things, but there's other, we probably view the world differently in certain respects. And that's, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if, if, if the Renaissance of men, I think you're even hosting a retreat, the way you do things is beautiful. And I think what happens with a lot of men and even men in the, probably even in the manosphere, I'm just learning this language, by the way, but guys are often guilty of, they see a, the way another guy is doing it. And they think it's wrong or they, they, they don't, they wouldn't do it that way. So they judge it. And the thing is, man, like you just said, there are guys like you who can articulate and can tap into things with relative ease that other guys might really struggle to, to tap into. Mm-hmm. And they can do that in a particular environment that other guys can't. That's not wrong. That's just different temperaments, different personality styles, different upbringings, right? Cool. Dif- different education styles. Great. That's to be celebrated. Uh, these different, I see these different pockets of, let's call them masculine tribes popping up all over. And you're, I know you've been in this space a long time. You're seeing that as well. And we have to be really careful about how we talk about these other tribes um, because there, typically there is a space for guys of that temperament in that zone. Now, not to say all the tribes are healthy, but it makes me think when like Jesus one time was confronted by one of his disciples and the disciple said, Jesus, uh, this guy over here is casting, he's, he's preaching and casting out spirits in this particular fashion. And Jesus said, well, is he against us? He's like, no. He's like, well, then let him be. He's, he's doing it in his own way. Mm, Great point. Right. And I don't, that's not for me to judge. I don't know. Like, cool. But I, I think we just live in a very litigious, slanderous time. And we just, we could just get really, 
I know you've been slandered. I know I've been slandered. We could, as men, as we cultivate honor, we have to also be careful about how we talk about these other, these other tribes and what they're doing. And, you know, if they're not against us, great. Like have at it, man. Like, I love that you're doing that. Run hard, keep swinging, go for it. There's plenty of men on the planet that need mentorship. Just go hard, go for it. Yes, that is, that is entirely the point of the Renaissance of men is the idea that all these different men are doing all these different things, trying to serve all these different men. And collectively, there's this renaissance going on. My, the intro to the podcast, when men listen to this, go back last week and listen to Brandon Lansdowne. The intro to that podcast talks about what you're, essentially what you're saying. And the example that I use is like, watch Lord of the Rings. You have the fellowship, nine men, and they're all different from each other. Yeah. No two men, no two men are alike. Even Mary and Pippin are very different in, the, in their characters. And they all have a role to play and they all need different things and they all transform through different hardships. And you can't take any of those men out. And none of the men are looking at each other being like, yeah, it's not a real man. I'm the real man. <laughs> right? Because like Frodo, like the, the humblest and the quietest is given the most important task. And like, I think men used to have this appreciation of each other more. Like if you go back and you watch the, the, like the World War II movies, it's always like the ragtag kind of bunch. You know what I mean? Like where, where they all find a way to come together and, 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 you know, or the movie, the Sandlot or whatever, all these different kind of outcast kind of guys, war movies, band of brothers, all these different kind of men used to figure out how to make it work together. And that was part of the beauty of being men. That's why you have, you know, why you had men working in, in teams or, or, or gangs, not the same sense that we mean it now, but like gangs of men working together towards common cause and the men are all different and that's their value together. But yeah. now I think in the social media age, you have guys holding themselves up like, no, I am the man. I am the example of masculinity. Anyone who is not like me is gay or something like that, right? <laughs> that seems to be the thing, right? Oh, you're like name calling like beta, cuck, simp, brokey, whatever, name it, right? If you're not like me, I'm going to call you a name. And it's so pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic because it just dishonors, it dishonors them because there's only, there's only one man truly worth looking up to, and that's the God man. But it also divides men from each other when they could use each other's skills to accomplish something so much greater. Instead, we have this hyper-individualized culture where every man has to one-up each other as if some world of, of scarcity Man, there are there are three billion men on the planet. There are 150 million men in America. You know, there's enough to go around. We can have different kinds of men that need different kind of things and respond to different kind of things. That's the entire point of the Renaissance of men. That men don't have to be like me. They can be like you or Brendan or Ryan, Wisdom of Kings or Kurt or whoever. Mike, Penn, name it. Right? You get it. Yeah. You know, but it's really a gut check for us personally. It's Okay, what is it in me that has to criticize the way that that guy is doing it or the way that that guy is playing his part? And, you know, it makes me think of like in a team sport like soccer, you, I tend to like watching guys who play like my style. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, what's uh, your style? What's your style? Not to take, not to derail. Yeah. Just like attacking midfielder who just likes to go at people with speed. I like watching that kind of creative play. Uh, but if you're a, 
you're a hard-nosed defender that just likes crushing other opposing teams. You know, you like watching that guy on TV, right? And we we tend to like guys or who do things the way we do them. And yet variety, especially in the kingdom of God, is a celebrated attribute, right? Mm-hmm. So we, dude, even in churches, bro, it's like people that have a strong teaching gift tend to go to a, a, a church where the guy has a really strong teaching gift. People that have a have a, a real um, prophetic gift where they're, 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 they like to bring correction and they, they have an unction for that in a, in a skilled way. They, they tend to they tend to flock together. People that are uh, big on charity tend to flock together, right? Social justice warriors type types. Mm-hmm. So um, it we tend to associate with those who are most like us. And part of I, I think part of the the our masculine development is learning to appreciate the different sides of the diamond that masculinity can represent. And man, I, I'm even having to always question myself and make sure I'm not, I haven't slidden into a, a judgmental uh, moment, right? Where I just, you know what? Like, they're not against us, man. Like, go for it, bro. Like, high five. Good, good for you. Uh, but, but again, the reason I'm even mentioning this is I've even the last year caught so much slander Mm. and it is a real problem, not just with women, but with men. We don't understand honor. We don't understand how to speak about other men who may actually really disagree with us. Um, We just don't know how to do it. It hasn't necessarily been demonstrated. It's not a virtue we hold up. And it breaks my heart, man. Um, and I, I will say this, dude. I'll say this strongly. By the way, I have slandered people in the past and been railroaded for it. And, and I've, I've hurt people. So I, and I have, I'm, I'm aware that I'm aware of the damage that can be done when you slander people. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's different texts in scripture. The one that sticks out to me the most about this issue of honor is um, when King David was anointed as a teenager. Samuel anoints him. He's like, "You're going to be the king." The anoint God, God is removing the kingdom from Saul's from Saul's grips and giving it to you. But then there's this long process where David is being developed and he's you know killing lions and bears in the field and and then he. Becomes, he kills Goliath, and then they begin to sing songs about him. David has killed, or Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And David's now this hero, war hero. And Saul's losing the, the applause of the people. And Saul can tell the kingdom is sliding out from under him. <clears throat> and he knows Samuel has anointed David, which was done in secret, but I'm sure at that point he knew about it. But my point is this. Saul began to hunt David. He literally tried to kill David with a spear multiple times. There's a moment when Saul is out hunting David. He has a band of warriors and they're literally hunting him down. David and his men are hiding in these caves. They go into a cave. Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. He relieves himself. David happens to be in that cave with some of his men. They're really quiet, tucked away in the corner. <clears throat> his men go, now's your moment, Dave. Kill, kill, kill your enemy. And David instead says, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. And so he cuts off a little piece of his cloak. And once Saul gets within distance, David comes out of the 
cave. He says, Saul, it's me. I was in the cave with you. I could have killed you. Here's the proof. I am not the one that is seeking your downfall, right? I'm not, I'm, I don't hate you, right? I refuse to speak ill about you. Whatever God has declared or established, let it be. That's not for me, but I won't speak ill against God's anointed. And here's, here's why I say it. You don't know. We like to think we do, but we don't actually know which players God has and which tribes and where they're at and what their tone is. And we can, we can always criticize heretical doctrine, but I'm talking about temperaments and approaches and styles. We are so quick to judge that stuff. And I just, I often wonder if men do not, because men don't understand honor, that they would speak against a man that could potentially be doing what he's supposed to be doing. And you are throwing firebrands, not realizing. The proverb says, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. Mm. Right? It just, it's like a fleeting sparrow. It won't land. It, 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 in fact, slander only hurts you. It's not hurting that guy. <laughs> it's only really hurting you, to, truthfully. And so I've just always had it, held it close to my heart since I, since I was a slanderer to, to, not, to be an honorable man and to be very careful about how I talk about, especially how I talk about other Christians and um, what, how, they're, how they're moving forward with their movement or their tribe or whatever. And <clears throat> I'm very sensitive to that. And I would like to encourage your listeners, be very selective and very careful how you talk about these men. You, you could. You could unknowingly be speaking against someone God has put in that position. And now you're in a bad position. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be there. Amen. I hope everyone go back. Everyone rewind however long that was, you know, two, three, four minutes and listen to that again. It's really, really important. Um, because I'll say that when I started talking about masculinity, I was, I was prepared for pushback from, from feminists and from women. It took me about a year of doing it to realize the thing that I really needed to be prepared for was the pushback from men, let's say, in, the, in my own camp, right? We're all trying to talk about masculinity together. We're all trying to do this thing. What I really need to be prepared for is, is pushback from men that, whatever, don't like me, don't like what I'm doing but who otherwise should be on my team, right? And, and I knew that and I realized that. And when it came, I still was not prepared for it. And I appreciate you saying that because, you know, that, because uh, I've talked about it elsewhere, but, you know, some of the slander that was taking place on Twitter was, was pretty rough. Um, and and it, it, I did, it was very hard for me to deal with for a while. And I, I'm grateful that you, that you shared that story about, David and Saul, because there's just, there was this intuition in my mind, like, Will, just don't say anything. Just don't, don't, you know, I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy you want. Like whoever the person attacking me, like, I'm not the dude you want. There's something else that you have in your mind that ain't me. Right. And, and I appreciate you saying that the, because as I look back on how I handled it, I was like, I can look back with pride and say, I never commented. I never fired back. There's no comment out there that I left that I feel crappy about now, right? Yeah. Like I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't launch my own slanders. God knows I was tempted to, 
right? And I think I think that's something that all men experience is like, what is the right response to being slandered in public, you know, by by people that you would consider either friends or enemies? You know, mm-hmm. the, the the common way of phrasing it is like, don't stoop to their level. Well, yes, but I like how you said that there's a higher spiritual purpose here. You know, it's like maybe maybe this person is serving is serving a purpose that you don't know. And so rest in the Lord and find comfort there and know that, and, and, and I like the wisdom that you shared, if it's without cause, it won't land, uh-huh. right? And that's something, that's something that I think is also, is also really important because slander is part of creating content, especially talking about masculinity and faith. It will be part of it. Uh-huh. But if it doesn't land on you, then what do you care, right? It, it but does, I had to learn that the hard way. I think you'll agree on this. During those seasons, it's really hard. Yeah, uh, be, because you know, no, because you're taking arrows to the back, man. Like that's never a pleasant experience. Yeah, and especially from people that you might even hold us, uh, you you might hold in high regard or or value you value and you care about them. But um, what it what it has done for me though is shown me how no matter how much I thought my identity was rooted in what God says about me, that I, I still had the fear of man in me. I still had parts of parts of my soul that were really attached to my reputation. And the truth is, man, I just, I wish it wasn't the case. I just don't think God cares about my reputation that much. <laughs> he cares about, he cares about his reputation, you know? Fair. And Jesus was slandered, bro. And not just yes. that, he was hunted down and murdered. And yeah. we're supposed to be following him. So why are we so shocked when somebody talks bad about us? And why does it cause us to be in a fetal position? Like, where is your faith? And where is your identity? That stuff is a clue to you that maybe your identity isn't rooted where you thought it was. And Sometimes, you know, I didn't know. I, you won't know that unless you get criticized and slandered sometimes. Sometimes you just, you're unaware. <clears throat> so in, in a sense, I'm grateful for, for that. I, I don't like it. I don't wish it upon anyone. But I, I am genuinely, I have a, I have a fear, like a, a trembling for, for men that do that stuff, that slander, and they don't understand what they're reaping mm. through their own slander. Because oh. You do reap what you sow. Yeah. That's not some karma. That's, that's biblical. That's not karma. You do reap yeah. what you sow. Sow the and, wind to reap the whirlwind. Life and death are in the power of the tongue, my man. So uh, I just, even, even men that I vehemently disagree with, there's plenty of them who vehemently disagree with me. I'm just more careful now about even political figures, I'm just more cognizant of, I just don't know. I, I don't, God does, God does not think like me. God will use, God will use people that you think are unqualified and God will not apologize for it. You don't think that person's qualified. So what? God didn't ask your opinion about that. I, it brings to mind, there's a story in scripture. There's a guy named Jephthah. I think it's Jephthah. He is born from a prostitute, a high-ranking man in the town, sleeps with this woman. Well, she has a baby. He doesn't want anything to do with that baby. 
raised, he grows up around the other boys in, in the tribe. Well, eventually they kick the mom and the son out. They're like, we don't want to associate with this trash, right? And, and the guy, he's a wild man. He goes out in the wilderness and he just he's a, he's a, becomes a warrior and a hunter. Well, years go by and Israel is under a threat by a foreign nation. And the tribe, they come to him. They're like, Jephthah, we know you're a fierce warrior. Will you come help defend? Will you lead our army against this attacking enemy? He says, under one condition. I want you to make me your leader, <laughs> right? And they're like, fine. Yes, you can be our leader. We have rejected you, right? You were, you were trash to us, but God used this man to rescue the people who thought he was trash. So I, I'm just not that convinced. Like we have our ideas about qualification and about, dude, to me, like degrees don't matter. I, I don't care if you drive a, a Lamborghini or an Escalade. I don't care. I, I care about, are you, a, are, are you the guy God has for the moment? I'll follow that guy. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's, that's my two cents. I am okay. I'm not saying we shouldn't like openly discuss if this is good or bad. I'm just saying we need to tread on thin ice about how we talk about other men. Absolutely agree. There is a way to disagree with a man's ideas without making it about the man. Andrew Tate is a, is a great example. I can mm -hmm. very much disagree with his worldview. I did a tweet about this. Like There are many things about Andrew Tate's worldview that I disagree with, and I think that's fair. Like, but mm -hmm. I, can, I can disagree with his worldview, his ideas, without making it about him, right? right. And like my whole, my whole thing is like, Look, if you step onto the field of masculinity, you want to ha be part of this dialogue and you pick any industry. This is the one we're talking about. You put on the jersey and you're prepared to have your ideas bash up against someone else's. And you can do that and that's fair and those are the rules of the game. But when you make it personal, when you start name calling, when you start throwing, and this is the thing with the manosphere is that, you know, why it's, why it's so problematic. It's that it's all designed around shame and slander. You know, Mike Cernovich, the famous political commentator, called the Manosphere, famously called it the ghetto of the internet. Now, when he said that, he didn't mean like, he didn't mean that it was like, um, like what the associations with ghetto, like, um, like it's, it's, it's some place that people are sectioned off to. That's not what he meant. What he meant, it's like, it's like turf warfare. You know, it's like gangs. It's like the rule of the street. Like that's, that's the Manosphere. Right. And it's, it's sad to see that because ultimately I think all these men, many of them are trying to do the right thing in many different ways, but there's a culture of like, they've got knives out and they're just ready to stab each other on, on social media. Right. Versus like, Hey guys, versus, you know, my, what we're talking about here and my thoughts with the Renaissance is like, Hey, what if we're all looking at different aspects of masculinity and we're all trying to articulate this big picture that's so much grander than ourselves. Instead of guys fighting with each other, instead of guys fighting to get the various pieces of the pie, what if all the, what if all the, um, what if together we can create something so much greater than ourselves if, if we collaborate, if we collaborate on a grander, on a grander vision. And that's the idea that I try to propagate to men. It's like someone else, you know, in the Lord of the Rings example, like Aragorn and Gandalf, two totally different guys, totally 100%. different, totally different dudes. You know, and they didn't look at each other and be like, I don't think you're a real man, old man. It's like, I think you, 
right? There was none of that. But you know, well, we all know Gandalf was the OG. So, well, yeah, he's like a he's like a <laughs> celestial being in human form, right? But I mean, even Aragorn is one of the Dúnedain, like one of the you know lives thousands of years or something like that. He's no slouch himself, but like you know, and they did, none of them looked at none of them looked at Merry and, and Pippin. You know, right. and said that, you know, you're not real men. It's like they acknowledged the reality and knew that it took the entire fellowship to work together. Right. And so this is the why men have to be careful with slander is because you don't know who, who you're cutting off from your team who might be reading. You might be saying something online and then there's someone who might otherwise be predisposed to agree with your message who doesn't agree with what you're saying in that point. And you show an ugly side of your personality. And it just divides men from each other rather than bringing men together to, to, for, towards common cause. Right. Yeah, dude, it's definitely a lesson that we, I mean, I don't hear people talking about this stuff. I don't hear people no. talking about, I, I do hear sometimes in church circles talking about the culture of honor. And I, I tend to view it more through like the warrior ethos, like mm-hmm. in a, in a warrior culture, how do you talk about your tribal members? How do you talk? Yeah. How do you even talk about your enemy? Old school warriors would, they talked respectfully about their enemies. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a, wasn't a disrespectful tone to it. Um, so, yeah, man, that's kind of how I, I see it. Like when at VMI, man, if you were, if you had beef with somebody, you, you wouldn't talk dishonorably about them. You would literally uh, schedule a boxing round with them. Mm-hmm. You'd have to schedule it. Like you couldn't fight each other and, and the regular barracks. Uh, I never had to do that. Nobody really had beef with me, but um, it was a real thing, but it was a culture of honor. And they understood, like, we're very careful about how we talk about our brothers. Although he pissed me off, I'll punch him in the face, but I'm going to be careful about how I talk about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We don't have that kind of thing anymore. Uh, and so half, gosh, let's, let's just be honest. 90%, nine, maybe 95% of the dudes that talk smack on, on social, on the internet, probably probably wouldn't do that one-on-one with you in an elevator. Oh, yeah. Because of how awkward it would be. So it's just this false bravado, and that's in the mix too, man. So we had, mm. I'm aware of that stuff. Uh, but it's still, words can still hurt, you know? Yes, words, words do hurt. By the way, just one thing I wanted to add is that the struggle for me in being slandered online, and maybe you can relate to this, it wasn't, it wasn't that it called into doubt my, my identity. Like it wasn't like, oh, maybe he's right. It wasn't like that. It was, it was that my particular pet sin is wrath. And because I've learned the, the hard way that the power of life and death is in the tongue, and I know that about myself. And so for me, it was holding the active pain of holding myself back from absolutely unleashing right? Which would have been terrible, would have been absolutely terrible to do, but it was that, it was that active, it was that active pain. But I can see now looking back that it was a huge part of my sanctification was learning to, to let that go. Cause I've caused destruction from that in the past. And so to, to learn to let that go. And by the same token, you know, for men who do experience these things to recognize that, the, the slander, the pain that you're suffering through, however, you can use as, as an opportunity for sanctification, or you can use it as an opportunity, like you said, let's do something righteous in response. 
because there is something righteous about, okay, you actually want to talk smack about me? Let's actually fight, meaning I'm going to train to fight for three or four months, and then let's actually do this. Okay, you want to make this real? At least you've generated something productive. Or if you're slandering, like, you know, you build something as a response, like, okay, you're talking smack about me. I'm going to channel all that energy into something constructive. And that, I think, is the proper response rather than getting down in the mud with slander in response. It's hard, but I think that's where real virtue, that's where real virtue lies. And praise God, he guided me to do both of those things. But if it were under my own strength, I wouldn't have been able to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, gross, it's a gross sin, bro. It really, it really irks me. I'd like to see men rise up as honorable, honorable examples for, for, for the next generation, man. And we're capable. Like sometimes we talk about stuff like the country and the world's gone to shit and it's all like, oh, it's, it's a done deal. It's like, man, that is not, I'm not in that camp. I'm game like, over, man. <laughs> I'm, it's not game over, bro. I, the way I play sports is the way I live life. It is not over. I don't care if we're losing 10 to nothing. We still have a chance. Let's go. It's, let's go down swinging. Uh, so the tide shifts The tide shifts when, when men shift, right? And I, I love that stat. Um, I think it was almost something like 6% of early Americans resisted the British and fought off the most the, the fought off the world power to to win our our independence six percent of the population mm-hmm. not not a huge percentage there just real contenders and the same thing happened at Thermopylae so I mean I realize that's glorified but the concept we, we what if we don't need as many as many as we think we do what if yeah. you know what if we just need some serious contenders? Uh, who just don't break easy, who just aren't, they don't melt under pressure, man. And God help us. Like none of us is impenetrable, but I think, I think personally, I think, and this is for the guys who are listening. You were born for this generation. You weren't born a thousand years ago. You were born now. Act like it. Like, why are you so shocked? Uh, Well, (laughs) I understand culture can be shocking, but why are you so shocked? that you're here for it. Like, okay, you're here. Now what? Uh, you're not, you're not supposed to just twiddle your thumbs. Like you have to do something about it. And, and, and that looks different for each of us, but we, I, I don't think I'm on the losing team. I think Christ rules the universe. I think Christ is the ultimate. I think the spirit of Christ lives in us. He who is joined with Christ is one spirit with him. I will be resurrected. The worst thing you can do is kill me. <laughs> uh, mm. But I've had so many near-death experiences. I now know I can't die until it's my moment. Mm-hmm. I, it, God has a plan for my life. And I want to I go down mid-swing. You know? Yeah. Man, I got to get you and Nate Spearing on a podcast together. Just so <laughs> I can listen. No, that's exactly... That's exactly what he says about the battle. He says he it's a quote from Hippocrates or Hippolytus, some 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 Greek or Roman philosopher. And the quote is goes something like, "There are a hundred men on the battlefield. Eighty of them shouldn't be there. Uh, Ten of them are targets. You know, nine of them are real warriors. 
but one man will bring them all home. Right. And that's yeah. like, that's, that's fantastic. And, and it's, and, and one of the things that Nate says to me all the time, we're going to win. Absolutely agree. And you don't need, you don't need an army of, of millions. There's a Chesterton's a quote. It's like the best, the best, oh, what is that? The best thing is um, to fight for a losing cause and then not lose. <laughs> right. Yeah. Same kind of thing. It's like, we don't need millions of people. You can do great things with a small but passionately committed force of men, especially with women behind them as well, but a small but passionately committed force of men who really believe the true believers, they pull off incredible stuff, especially with God behind us. That's all like read the Psalms. You hear David crying out to his enemies that are trying to destroy him all these different ways. It's like, but God's behind me. Like if God's behind you and what you're doing, how can you possibly lose? And so many men, they've never been taught that or they've lost sight of that. Like God is on your team. If you're on team Christ, you're on team God. And God's the big, you know, that, that meme of like the, you have all the, 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 um, it's not a meme. It's like a, a painting or something, a piece of digital art where you have all these like human sized soldiers. And then there's this like 50 foot tall or hundred foot tall giant with a big club. It's yeah, a little bit, yeah. it's, it's a little bit like that, right? But men don't feel that way. And I don't really understand why, because it's, it's in the book. Yeah. That's a good question. I, I, well, how it's hard to feel strong when you're alone. Mm. You know, your, your, your personal boldness has limits, but how it's funny. Like, just picture a group of 10 guys, one guy at a, at a bar who sees a girl he wants to talk to, right? Only musters a certain amount of courage. You get 10 guys and they're like goading and they're like, bro, you got this. You could do this. We've mm. seen it. And they're, they're, they're rehearsing what he's going to say. And then they're, they're encouraging. And then, you know, he, he drinks his beer and he walks over and he's, what happened? There's a little bit of liquid courage there going on, but, sure. but he also had the, the, uh, the encouragement and the, let's call it the positive peer pressure of his bros to step into the fray. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think amplify that in your town in your, in your region. And you, you get, you've got a tribe who's got your back. You're way more bold. Mm-hmm. You're what you feel way more formidable. And you're, if you're also doing personal development and work on your own courage and practicing that every day, I mean, God knows the sky's the limit. I mean, courage really is a muscle. That's a great point. That is a, because maybe you saw the video going around last week of it looks like a bunch of high school students in the weight room. There's like one of these per year that go around and it's like all these, this guy's going to, I think he's going to do like a clean and jerk or a snatch or something like that. It looks like, you know, 150 plus pounds, who knows? And like the guys are all standing around him and they're all screaming and hollering. He's all getting fired up, getting in front of the bar. It's like, there's no amount of weight that you can't lift with that many dudes behind you. (laughs) Right. You just, you're just going to do it. Right. And, and I like how you point out the bar thing too. It's like, yeah, go talk to the girl. Cause you've got five guys there with you, like cheering you on, not shaming you into it. Like go do right. it, you know, yeah. but really like supporting you. Like we've got your back. Men don't have that secular, right. or, especially Christian men don't have that. The idea of, of men supporting each other in manly pursuit do- doesn't exist. And now you got me thinking about how I'm going to build that. Cause that needs to exist. Well. 
you, like I said, I just don't, sometimes I, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know that you need validation. You don't know that you could have way more courage if you just ha- were around other courageous men. You don't understand the power of that because you've, a lot of guys haven't necessarily been part of a team or a tribe. They've just, they just weren't raised that way or it wasn't, it wasn't just part of their life experience. And, um, man, I, I can, I've just personally lived it my whole life and I know I'm just way better when I have guys in my corner and that's hard, man. Look, let's be honest. Uh, when you are a free thinker, when you are a critical thinker, when you say what you think, when you, when you have standards, um, and, and when you're in, in earnest pursuit of growth, you will also outgrow people. That sounds bad to say. Uh, and so it can get lonely. Like you, you, your, your standards are to a place that other people don't, don't enjoy that, don't enjoy you in that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Classic example, you stop drinking. Now, like you, you basically have a new group of friends. It's, it's just a different association. Well, I, I think that is, that is also the case uh, for, for we, we've coined them lone rangers, lone wolves, but guys who are on a growth journey do go through seasons of lone ranger, lone wolf, not necessarily because they want to be a lone wolf, but because, dude, it's like when you're running a marathon and you're just crushing it with your pace and other people are having a tr- trouble keeping up with you. Um, but if you slow down your pace, it's going to ruin your race. Because you have to keep your pace. Yeah. And that's not mean to keep your pace. It's not judgmental. It's just wise. Right. So you got to find other other runners that can keep your pace. And and sometimes, you know, David had Jonathan. He didn't have 20 other guys. I mean, he had his he had his uh what what they call him? The not the men of honor, but the mighty, mighty men. men. He had his mighty yeah. men. Um, but but J- Jonathan was his right hand guy, and it may not be a ton of guys should be at least one and we have to work at that that's not going to happen by happenstance Mm -hmm. and you know regard i think a lot of men are actually afraid to run their race because they intuitively know that they're going to have to leave friends behind you know they a bunch i I hear the story a lot where you know a group of guys that get to know each other and they all become friends but they're very much like they have a very much like a small town kind of mindset. They may or may not be in a small town, but they've got the small town kind of mindset. And it's like one of the guys knows that he he wants more or is destined for great things or wants to t- cultivate some skill. And that's going to take time away from that he would normally be spending with his bros. And he's afraid, actually afraid to run his own race because he's afraid to be alone. And there's a, there's a lot of that. There's a, uh, there's a lot of that. And it's, and and sometimes even the guys that he's friends with wouldn't even be understanding if he said he wanted to do that because ideally you know you would be able to say to your brothers like hey guys I have to go do this thing whatever the thing is I have to leave the small town or the Thursday nights that we would spend drinking like I really need to give that to jujitsu or my family or whatever and the guys would be like bro go do the things that you need to do go with our blessing that would that would be the ideal case but too often it's like no, you can't leave the group. And that makes it even worse. And I think a lot of men are stuck in dynamics like that. It is. It's definitely hard, but it, it's, it's helpful if you can just articulate that to yourself. Like, yeah, I'm running a race. This is the direction I'm heading in. Okay. Are these people running in that direction? 
Are they at the same pace? Is the, this isn't mean, this isn't judgmental. I'm just trying to be clear on my direction. Uh, and, and truth be told, here's another one. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm not a pastor. Okay. So I just read my Bible and try to obey Jesus. Uh, <laughs> that's that's it. better than uh, a lot of pastors. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a work in progress, but I will Same. say, I will say this. Um, hopefully you guys can tell I'm just a normal guy. I'm not, you know, I'm not a theologian or whatever, but when you open your life to the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, when you open your life to, let's, you know, the, he, he blows where he pleases. And, and, and God starts asking you to, to, he starts nodding you in particular directions. Uh, a lot of people like the Bible and a lot of people like the Father, but they don't like the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit seems too ethereal. Seems to, because they've seen weird charismatic YouTube videos about whatever, and they throw the baby out with the bathwater, not realizing Jesus is not on the earth. Jesus is seated on his throne. The Holy Spirit is indwelling men right now, right? God with us, Emmanuel. So the Holy Spirit, like I said earlier, I just don't think he cares too much about my reputation. I think he cares about his purposes. And mm. I'm supposed to be aligned with that. And, and I do think as God develops you, you, you start to get in touch with uh, the seeds that he's implanted in you, your giftings, your talents, your vision, the anointing, stuff like that. Um, it's like his spirit almost enlivens those things. They come to life and it kind of sets you on a trajectory. And, and just walking with the spirit of God will separate you, will separate you. Uh, it doesn't mean you're weird, but I've seen so many things that would be classified as weird. Mm -hmm. And let's just think of weird as it's just, it's just not your normal. Right. But I'm, I don't know about you, but I, I want to grow, which means I have to move in. I have to constantly move into unfamiliar territory and and i have which means i have to constantly press against the weird stuff right it's unfamiliar i don't know this feels weird to me this is unusual and that's why i think one of the reasons jesus said look you've got to be a child you've got to you've got to don't be a child in your in your thinking per se but that childlike spirit you've got to be you've got grids and paradigms and and theological lenses that you are viewing me through and and listen god's ways are higher and sometimes i've had god explode my doctrine many times about what i thought god was like and turns out he's a lot better than i thought he was <laughs> so i couldn't i would I'm not the kind of guy that could have a debate about theology on a stage, but I am the kind of guy that goes, I've, I've seen a lot. I've had adventures with God. I know he's good. He's going to finish what he started. And if you want to live a full life, you can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. The Bible, by the way, in my view, you can read the Bible as, as a historical narrative, and you could read the Bible 
for the purposes of garnering, you know, theological language and learning the stories and trying to understand the prophecies. I don't actually think you can get the revelation of the scriptures without the Holy Spirit. Yes, I agree. I, I think he enlivens what what was pen and ink. He it do, he deposits that into your spirit so that you will under, you will have revel, revelatory understanding <clears throat> that that just mere study could not provide you. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's one reason I, prayer takes what you assimilated and gets it into your bones because you're communicating with God. You're shutting up and listening. And I think your spirit understands things. Even if you are having trouble processing it cognitively, the spirit in you understand he's one with your spirits, one with Christ. Mm -hmm. So your spirit may even be understanding things in the scripture that you haven't assimilated in your mind just yet. The mind is behind. The spirit's always above, right? So sometimes I'm like, God, I'm reading this. I don't know if I'm really getting it. I pray to get in my spirit. Mm-hmm. Get it in my spirit. And when I, you know, and then remind that the Bible says the spirit of God will remind you. He'll bring he'll bring things to remembrance that you've that you once digested. So that's one of the reasons we do read scripture. He illumines the truth. But then he reminds us of things we didn't even know we knew that. Love it. This is all very re- this is all very real for me. This is this is all what I'm going through on a daily, weekly process is understanding the difference between spirit, soul, and body. Renewing renewing a right spirit, being able to read because in uh, I got baptized in September of 2020. In so in in summer of 2019, so a year before, a year prior, I was trying. I was reading the Bible because I thought I was going to be a writer. I, I was going to be a fiction writer, tell stories from my tell stories from my travels. So um, if that's the case, then I should probably read the Bible, right? Because it's the foundational book of all Western literature. So I was trying to read the Bible in 2019, and mm. like it was pen and ink to me. I read the Bible every morning now, and it is not pen and ink to me definitively. And that's, that's, that's not because of necessarily like my cognitive processes around it changing. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit enlivening the word or enlivening my eyes or both to be able to actually see it. The Bible starts appearing in three dimensions as opposed to just flat ink on a page. So I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think um, there's a component, you talk, the Holy Spirit as well, not understanding that because there are a lot of charismatics that go a bit too far. You know, it's the same, it's the same thing with the charlatans, right? Like the, the yeah. cessationism, it's the same kind of questions. Like, well, I saw some people being weird once, so none of that can be real. It's like, right. well, slow, slow down there. And, and I think that there's also, and maybe we can bring this back to some of the therapeutic stuff, because what I've noticed within the Christian churches is I've come from this inner healing kind of background. And I know that these, some of these practices they have some small amount of value. It's not the same thing as regeneration and sanctification, but I have encountered releasing trauma. I have done that over and over again, and it has created a measurable benefit in my life. Nothing compared to the process of sanctification, but still. And yet people are, Christian men and women are looking for healing, and there's nothing really, well, I know of several books about it that I read that teaches them how to let go of stuff as Christians. How do you work through trauma as a Christian? 
Who's doing that work? Who's talking about that stuff? Are you even allowed to acknowledge it? And I find, I, I find in, in a lot of the modern dialogue, there's so little acknowledgement of the reality of that. And so many people are suffering. They're suffering with real things that hurt. And there's no one that's able to really minister to help them drop the baggage and let those things go or really go into them the right way. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how these things show up in your, in your walk as a Christian man and as a therapist and as a, a, men, a small men's initiation leader, you know, small group men's initiation leader, how do you put these things together in a Christian framework for you? Again, not as a theologian up on stage, but how does it show up for Rios? Yeah. Well, of course, it's always individual and unique, but um, I would say, you know, having having some background training in EMDR and and mm. uh, a little bit of brain spotting, and then um, something called somatic experiencing, and then even experiential accelerated therapy. Uh, those are very body based approaches to to the the healing of trauma and the discharge of trauma. And one thing people don't actually realize is your body holds on to things without your conscious permission. Yeah. Right. I had a lady walk into my office one time, her shoulders were pressed up against her ears, like locked in position. She was just real tight. I mean, like absurdly tight. I was like trying to not look at how tight it was. I mean, um, and she'd been like that for like what seemed, I think were, were decades. Mm. And it turns out she had been, assaulted from behind, right? And you're, when you get assaulted, your nervous system has a response. And that response in her body was, don't worry, we're never going to let that happen to you again, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a very visual example of the body holding on to things without your conscious permission. So we were able to work through, first off, she had to con- confess what had happened. She'd been, somebody broke into her house and raped her, right? It was a neighbor. And um, mm. so she'd never told anybody that. Go figure. This lady was probably 55 at this point. So, you know, that'll, that'll leave a mark, right? But her body had been telling her that for decades. Hey, you're injured. <laughs> you need to do something about it. Well, of course, she finally got help. And, um, and so there's different, there's different, let's call them modalities for helping people discharge trauma from the body. Um, sometimes that is... Uh, less complicated than you think. Um, EMDR is actually not very sophisticated. It's just a step-by-step process of, you know, uh, discombobulating the nervous system to almost in the way that uh, if you've ever been to a chiropractor and you like your back's out of alignment and he pops you just right, and all of a sudden there's a release of pressure and you just feel like your mobility is restored. Uh, so I, I talk to chiropractors about this all the time. Oftentimes when you, when you, realign someone they'll just start laughing or crying yeah there's a discharge you're like what are you laughing about i don't know i don't i don't know what are you crying about i don't know they're just weeping and they just let him be and the body's taking care of business the body's very intuitive and 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 beautiful in that way so that's that's some of it some of it man is just the confession processing component where uh, it's very common that i hear this on a weekly basis hey i've never told anybody this but a, B, and C, right? And they're basically telling you their secrets and holding on to things for days, months, years, decades will jack you up. Mm-hmm. So the process of confession, the process of not just confession, but also 
Um, how do I also to a degree analyzing that, like you landed on a conclusion here. Do you think that's true? Right. And so I'm not huge on, I'm not what you would call a Jungian where I'm, I'm not spending a, I usually don't spend a ton of time on past. I'm more of, okay, here's where we are now. Where do we go from here? Right. Uh, I, we do explore the past where needed, but it's, okay, here we are now. What's the next step forward? And so uh, the, there are also other, I started doing ice baths with clients at treatment centers years ago. And that was, guys were having a lot of uh, really interesting experiences with that, you know, but again, that's body-based. We were doing a lot of simultaneous, doing a lot of intensive deep breathing. And so, you know, you've, of course, Wim Hof and stuff like that's blown up. So there's different ways to access stuff that's stored in the body. Uh, every modality swears they're the best, right? Mm -hmm. But there's different, there's different ways. Heck, I mean, I've got, I can attest to this myself, but I also know uh, multiple endurance runners. They'll just be out on a 50 mile run and they'll just start weeping for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's like, what's going on? There? Something's getting discharged. You didn't even know you needed to discharge. So I have that experience fairly frequently when I do endurance things. So uh, yeah, man, there are just different ways. Prayer is another one, you know, um, the, the, the presence of God is real. Uh, so that, uh, what I'm, I guess what I'm painting here is just multiple options. And part of it is part of being a therapist is being willing to go there with people and into the weird mess and not judge them. Like I'm, I've heard so many crazy things at this point. I've been doing this for 20 plus years that I literally, it's really hard to shock me. I've been around, I've had murderers, I've had rapists, I've had victims, I've had war, war heroes, uh, amputees, you name it, man, soccer moms. I've just been around the block and I, I just, I, I, I do, I do enjoy it, uh, to the degree that I like seeing people get breakthrough. But of course, you know, it can be, can be heavy sometimes. So I have to be very cautious about what I do when I'm not in the office to just, you know, keep, keep the peace in my spirit. So hopefully that answers your question. It does. So this stuff is all really, really important because this is the world that I come from, right? This is, this is how I found my way. Uh, I would say to Christ, this is how I was able to travel. This is this was so much of so much of of what I went through, and you you mentioned something really important, which is so much of this is in the body. The body holds on to the we might say the energetic imprint of experiences long after our conscious mind has forgotten forgotten. Like it's I think it's in there somewhere, but like that's that's the whole notion of childhood trauma is that something significant and painful and difficult happens to the the body mind of the child and the energetic imprint is made even though the memory is suppressed and under you know decades decades of life but we walk through carrying around this armor right not in an armor of god sense but these tensions and pains in our body and we don't know where it comes from mm -hmm. until you actually open up this is how i experience as you open up the layers of of the psyche of the onion in an in a, in a environment of trust until you get down to this thing that happened that one time that's buried in there. And then you go into that memory, that emotion, and you um, re-experience it, and all the energy comes pouring out, and then suddenly that tension is gone. And then you're 
you're free of it. Like I, I've done that countless times, countless times. That's what, that's a big part of why I'm the man I am today. And none of it was Christian in nature, but none of it wasn't Christian. Right. And, you know, I observe that Christianity today is terrible, legit terrible with things of the fitness, sex, death, money, like entrepreneurship, like government, the things of this world it doesn't deal with, you know, government especially, just avoids them. And trauma is a big part of that. And I go to church. This was the, this was the, one of the hardest things for me. Starting to go to churches and seeing so many people obviously suffering under the weight of uh, under the weight of we might say traumatic burdens. You kind of see it, you know, the heaviness that people are carrying. Who knows where it ultimately comes from? But you can kind of spot people who are carrying this, and it's like, what are you offering to these people? Like, are you they're crying out for healing, and this this conversation is so essential from a Christian perspective because people need, need it more than anything. But again, I guess going back to the Holy Spirit and, and things like that, people aren't comfortable with these topics. But I think this is really important that you're offering this and that we're talking about this in general because this has so much promise for so many people. So maybe maybe just to make it concrete, let's talk about EMDR because I've done EMDR. Mm-hmm. It, one of the, I mean, it might have saved my life from something that I had been through. So um, to let it go. So let's talk about EMDR just to make it concrete for people what the what EMDR is, how it works, and and how you've seen it work. Sure. I should preface it by saying I respect EMDR. I'm trained in level one EMDR. I usually mm-hmm. refer out for that. I have some colleagues that yeah. really love that. That's their niche. But um, in my and I have I have uh, worked with clients and utilized that modality. But basically, there. The theory is that when you go through an experience, uh, uh, say a traumatic experience, high stress, uh, overwhelming to the system, that those those moments can be frozen in time in your memory and even in your body. And so you're just trying to live your life and work your job and love your family. But this freaking, these flashbacks keep coming up for you these triggers, and they're really holding, holding you back. They're really causing problems. And, uh, you know, we, we typically classify, we look at these categories. Are you having issues with relationships? Are you having issues with uh, career, with education? Um, where, where are you being hindered? If those are the categories, we're probably going to take that more serious. So uh, with, with trauma, yes, you're going to be struggling in those areas. So the, the idea with EMDR is when you're when you engage the eyes or even through touch, you can engage the body kinesthetically or the eyes. If you can get them moving from left to right, uh, or if if it's called tapping, if you're utilizing the body left to right, left to right in a particular cadence for over a particular time while the while the client is uh let's say, uh, uh, processing verbally or uh, exploring that, that incident, um, the idea is that the memory that, that, that has been frozen in time is becoming dislodged, right? As if, and one of the ways to think of it is uh, 
imagine I've got the, you, you, know, you guys who are listening won't be able to see this, but imagine you've got a normal sized straw, you've got a big clump of a of clay that wants to go down the pipe, but it can't because the, the 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 memory, the clump is too big, it's too grotesque, it's too dramatic. So you got to break it apart to get it to go down the tube, mm. so that it can assimilate properly into the memory system. Right? What we need. You know, that's the difference between someone who's gone through, say, a, a, a veteran who was hit by an IED and all of his comrades died, but he comes home and he's like, I mean, it was it was hard, and but he grieved it, but like he's moving forward with his life and doesn't seem to be having the flashbacks of PTSD. But then you got a guy who goes through that, through that, and like he's literally in the fetal position, can't sleep at night, triggers flashbacks all the time. What's the difference? Same experience was one guy frozen memories that just won't go down the pipe, won't be assimilated properly into the memory systems. The other guy, it's got assimilated into the memory systems. Obviously he's, nobody's perfect and it's, it's, he's going to grieve that, but that's the idea with EMDR. We are dislodging frozen memories, frozen trauma in the body, allowing for discharge. And oftentimes you'll see dramatic effect. I mean, I had a guy my first EMDR client survived the Oklahoma City bombing. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, I remember that as a kid. I don't, I remember seeing some of the news clips, but he was, he was there. And he was having, he had had nightmares about that. Vivid night terrors and nightmares for decades. And so we were able to do some EMDR and he was, he was able to experience discharge there. And, and, and he went through some profound healing there, but so yes, it, it does work. Obviously modalities are just different approaches and some modalities work with people and some, some other modalities work better with other people. And so that's just one of a multitude of options. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is how the way that I explain it to people is that when you're a child or even when you're an adult, there are experiences of, of, such real uh, energy and power, negative experiences, such an energy and power that the mind lacks the ability to process it, like lacks the ability, like, like breaking apart the memory. And that can be different things for different people. The same thing that scares me might not scare you. You know, I, I, my, my experience on the sailboat in the South Pacific was, you know, one of the most powerful experiences of my life. I don't have any traumatic memories about it. Someone else might have been deeply traumatized by the exact same experience. So it's different yeah. things for different people. And so, and so what happens is, is the energy gets frozen into the body in the form of some sort of physical ailment or tension or pain or something like that. Right. And so, and so you have to discharge, you have to discharge that energy by re-encountering, by re-encountering the memory. And you can have it happen when you're an adult, but Many of them happen in childhood because we have developing brains, right? Something that wouldn't even affect an adult could scare the crap out of a little kid, right? Uh -huh. And so you have to go, you have to peel back these layers of the psyche to get at this thing, this memory that's frozen in there mm -hmm. and, and release it, right? And, and the way that I tell people that, because there's a lot of, the word trauma gets overused, you know, and, and Alexander Cortez talks about that, like, oh, he, you know, like, and, and I think there's a way that it can get overused. But the way that I frame it to people is like, here's why this work matters. Going through emotional trauma as a child is like being, phys it's like physical trauma. If you're, and you, you'd know this being a soccer player, 
you probably have had things physically happen to your body. Like, okay, I can't, I can't bend my knee or squat as, as well. Like you're playing football or soccer or whatever. It's like, I have this physical trauma to my body. And now as I get older, I can't move in quite the same way that I used to because the trauma, right? Okay. It's the same way for our emotional body. It's the same thing. We have, we lack emotional flexibility because of emotional trauma in childhood and healing the trauma gives us greater range of emotional flexibility. And that's why I think that we're seeing so much, so many conversations about trauma because no time in human history, I feel pretty comfortable saying this, has required so much emotional flexibility as the past three years. Like to be able to flex and bend and move with society essentially tearing itself apart. You have to be able to adapt to changing headlines every day. And some people don't have the emotional flexibility. So they get fixed in place. But by healing the emotional trauma, they regain their emotional flexibility and can bend and move with the times. And so that's why I tell people it's still really important for us to do, especially especially for Christian people, because you have to have emotional flexibility to believe, hey, even though everything looks really dark right now, we're still going to win and we're still winning. That's an, that's an act of emotional flexibility that you have to be able to let go of a lot of things from the past to see. And so I hope you can hear, I'm trying to put a bunch of different pieces, different pieces together. It's like, here's this perspective of how we're supposed to be as Christians, trusting, trusting the Lord, you know, allowing the Holy Spirit to move and having that trust. Like we started out the very, the start of the conversation, going out of the frontier of trust and taking a big adventure to Ireland. Like that same kind of spirit, uh-huh. men to embody today, they have to be able to move back into a place of emotional flexibility and trust. But so many of them, are they, they don't have any tools to let go of the trauma that holds them back from that degree of flexibility. That's the theory I'm, I'm, I want to kick around. Yeah, absolutely. Let's face it. I mean, it's just, not, it's hard. It's not easy. It's, it's un- yeah. uncomfortable. Uh, I, and, you know, I'm a therapist, but I, I can readily say like, when communities were healthier and tribes were more connected and, and proximity was a thing, you didn't need therapists. Right. You had elders, you had mothers and fathers and friends and, and you would, you know, you had, you had people to go to. You didn't, you didn't have to go sit in an office and pay somebody. So we, we just don't operate like that anymore. So that's why we exist. Uh, it's a safe place, but um, yeah, you know, here's, here's maybe one way that I might, and I might differ from some other therapists is I, I do believe in modalities and I do believe they're important. Like we're talking about EMDR. I think it's beautiful. And I think there's, there's real science to it. I think there's real nervous system activation to it. I think it's validated. I also believe that some people are healers. Mm-hmm. Some people are, they carry giftings and anointings. And just like some people are teachers, they're just gifted in, the rhetoric and they can teach complicated concepts that you may never be able to do in a, in a particular fashion. And so I, I think modalities are important, I, but I think uh, they're, they are essentially, <clears throat> they're not nearly as powerful if they're not in congruence with the healer, with the person, the person is the instrument. So, yes. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, it's just a dumb example, but it's like if you go to an MMA gym and the guy's a, just a, he's a black belt in jujitsu, but he's just can't, he can't teach it. Like he's, he's good at it, 
but he just can't deliver the package in a way that that others can assimilate. So he's he's good at jujitsu, but he can't he can't teach it. Well, you can you can be good at modalities, but if you don't have the healing gift, then mm-hmm. it's your help. You're you're only going to go so far. So my prayer has always been, and I think I, you and I had talked about this once before, but um, I, I, that that movie, um, Lady in the Water, where the, it's by M. Night Shyamalan, and, and Story is the main character. She's she's from this this the, the ocean world in the movie. She's she's sent to the earth to the land dwellers to deliver a profound message, and but basically in the storyline, if you get near her. She unlocks things for you. She, he, there's a, in, the, in the story, there's a guy who's been trying to write a book, but all of his thoughts are jumbled. He gets in a room with her and all of a sudden, clarity. And he, can, he begins to write this story that's going to profoundly affect the planet in a, in a positive direction. So that idea of proximity with someone who has a gift of healing or, or has, is gifted in, in the area of wisdom uh, we need to be humble enough to know to go. Okay, if I'm lacking wisdom, the Book of James says I should pray for wisdom. God will give it to me. But sometimes that wisdom's also locked up in other people, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes your healing is locked up in other people. And modalities and techniques and tactics are good, but like your gifts are wrapped by a body. Your gifts are encapsulated by a body, so. You like if so, let's say this if you have the gift of healing, you literally are the gift of healing. You have it, it can be cultivated. So, that's my personal belief. And I do think that I I possess that gift to a degree. And, um, you know, so I, I, I also do hold the perspective that, um, the you know, pipelines can get clogged. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a PVC pipe can get clogged and you need to flush it, right? So, so, the, so the liquid can flow through with no problems. Well, your instrument can be clogged. You can be, uh, you can be engaged in things that would clog your ability to access wisdom, that would clog your ability to, to uh, in, a, in a regulated way, hear the voice of God, that would clog your ability to see other people as they are, not as you are, right? So I think walking with God in a steady flow of repentance and and just trying to maintain humility and also trying to maintain competence about your craft and about you know the 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 trail God has you on. I mean, I think all that comes into play. Uh, I'm very, I, I want to be very careful that I don't ever get to, to a point where I just think I got it. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I just, I think I'm just always supposed to be dependent on God. And it's very common for me that I will feel like I don't have it. And I just have to pray and be like, God, like, okay, I, I just want to be an instrument. I'm not, that's it. I'm just an instrument and help. <laughs> and I'll still, I'll keep studying and I'll keep learning and I'll keep trying to grow, but just like God is the ultimate architect. He understands the human condition. He understands your function. So he probably has the best ideas about how to help you with your stuff. Yeah, I, I, I relate to all of that. I think I have, I think I have a similar gift and uh, you know, it's, it's been 
you know, a gradual, well, it's not really gradual, but I, I hold on to the learning like I am not the gift. I was given the gift and the giver of gifts can take those gifts away. So not to confuse the gift for me. And I think that's, a, that's something that happens particularly in the new age world a lot where people begin to mistake their gift for themselves. First of all, they don't know where the gift comes from, but they, they think that they are the gift and yeah. they get some ego attachment to the gift. And, uh, and maybe they're even allowed to rise quite far under God's purposes with the healing, but then it can just disappear in a split second. They don't got it anymore. Right. And so there's a, there's a recognition of where, of where the gift comes from. But I think that there's a hesitance just in general to recognize that, no, those healing gifts, particularly inner healing gifts, like we're not talking about like the laying on of hands. I'm going to fix your broken bones by putting my hands on your leg. You know, that's not what we're talking about. It's the idea that, that things are the things of the soul, the mind, will, and the emotions, they can be healed with other people, exposure to other people's healthy souls, right? There's a, there's a sort of a learning by osmosis, and we're not really comfortable with talking about that, or it can be healed by the spirit, especially as well. We're not really comfortable with talking about that stuff. We don't have the language for it. Right. And particularly, one of the scenes I always go back to, and this, it doesn't happen in the books, it doesn't happen in the movies, the Lord of the Rings movies, but it's in the books. The, hand, the hands of the king are healing hands. Right. And that's in, that's in the book, but it's, it's, it's hinted at in the movies where Aragorn says, this is beyond my skill to heal with Athalos plant, right? Where he hints that he has healing, but they don't really go into it. But I believe that there's a component, particularly of men, that is so powerfully able to heal other men, heal anybody around them by having that healing gift if they know how to cultivate it if they know how to, if they acknowledge it, it exists in the first place and they find healing around their gift they can then offer that forward but, but again we're living in a culture particularly a christian culture where it's like what a healing gift what's that right maybe they have something they can learn from the from the new age people that acknowledge these gifts are real but don't really know where they come from yeah you know and here <laughs> let me say this uh i have also seen radical physical healings as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen things that my mind couldn't understand and tumors disappear and uh, uh, tr like instant inflammation leave and disappear. Uh, I've seen, sounds crazy. I've seen, I've had clients walk in with completely detached MCLs and ACLs on crutches that couldn't even, we had to put their foot on a pillow, keep it stationary so they could just sit in the couch. And by the end of the session, be completely healed and doing squats and running in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. So things that, things that I'm not trying to get a book deal. I don't even know how that stuff works. I'm like, God's a big boy. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, just my, I'm just, I'm just a normal person. God does what he wants. So I think body, soul, and spirit, like God made a planet. God, God created the planets, your knees, no problem. <laughs> you know, like whatever. Yeah. And so some of it is like the way we think about this stuff, like, you know, I just, I, I believe in a God that doesn't have limits. He limits himself, but he doesn't have limits, you know? We have limits in our thinking. We have teachings and things, but I just, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I think God's just way, 
way better and way bigger than I thought he was. And we have these fancy modalities. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes God's just up to stuff that, and you don't, you can't even articulate it or understand it. And you have to be a child about it. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's kind of like maybe a way to think of this guys is when you are going for surgery, uh, you have to subject yourself to laying on the, the bed. You have to subject yourself to the gas mask and, and then you have to subject yourself to the scalpel. It only, it only really works if you allow yourself to be laid out on the bed, right? So there is a submission process here and certain healing only comes when you submit yourself to the process, right? Not everything's instant. Sometimes we have to subject. Getting cut open with a scalpel doesn't feel good. <laughs> right? Uh, being confronted doesn't feel good. Uh, confessing that thing that you're really shameful about doesn't feel good. Having to go there and, and disrupt those parts of your life just doesn't feel good. But if you'll, if you'll ride the process out, then you can get healing on the backside. So sometimes it's instant. Sometimes it's a process. And there's guys listening right now. You're in the middle of that process and you just need to not stop. You just need to keep pushing forward. And you don't always have to understand. Like just ride the wave, right? And see see where it goes, okay? Uh, there, I think we've all, we can all attest to the fact that if we look back over the course of our life, there were moments we didn't understand what was going on. And now we see, boy, that was really formative. And I'm actually really glad that, that, that I went through that. And at the time, gosh, I wanted to escape it, but you wrote it out and here you are and you're glad you did it. It's kind of that way with the healing thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to draw a distinction between a couple different things that we're talking about so the audience doesn't necessarily get them conflated. Okay. So there there is a there is a component of healing that is the body's natural, we'll say emotional healing function. Like for example, if you get a cut, your body heals itself. That's how God designed it. You know, it doesn't require necessarily the power of the Holy Spirit to heal a cut on your arm. It has a natural healing function. The psyche works the same way with emo- with with emotional trauma. If you remove the, the, the memory or break it apart, it flows through the pipe. Order and balance is naturally restored in a f- new form of homeostasis. That is an organic function of our bodies. There's nothing paranormal, supernatural about it, any more supernatural than reality itself is. That's part of us. We can heal physically and we can heal mentally. Some of the things that you're talking about with radical physical healing is the power of, of, of the Holy Spirit, is God you know, creating essentially a miracle by his own volition and, and, and will to do, to do so, which is for his own purposes and has for his own glory and may or may not ever happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. You can, you can pray for it. You can, you can set the stage to make it possible, but ultimately that's, that's the, that's the will of God to intervene there in a sort of supernatural function versus the natural healing function. And those are two, those are two different things that I want to make sure that Absolutely. Yep. One hundred percent. Also, diet. Of course, mm. You know that's a. <laughs> we don't like to. You know we don't like to talk about that, but 
A lot of us eat ourselves into sickness. <laughs> no kidding. Oh yeah. I, like I said, I'm fasting right now, you know, and five hours, it'll be, se- it'll be 72 hours. Right. And so I'm, I'm breathing, I'm breathing more clearly through my nose. So like I had some sort of diet related conjecture congestion. What is it? Probably dairy. I don't know. But like, if you just fast, give yourself two, three, four, you can probably do it for five days. See how much better you feel. Then slowly add food back and see what happens. Mm-hmm. But we don't even know. I mean, we're not even talking about seed oils and high fructose corn syrup. Like you can eat a single ingredient diet and still be eating a fruit that you're allergic to and not realize it. Right. So, right. you know, it, we can do that with healthy things also. It's the same, even look, man, you can be sick in your mind based on the content you consume. Yes. Right. I mean, that's what a delusion is, right? It's sickness of the mind. You believe lies. Those lies have become your reality. So you can be sick in the body. You can be sick in the mind. And that's, by the way, this is what salvation is. You were sick in your spirit. You Mm -hmm. were dead. Right. And then you were revived, resuscitated with a living spirit. So, yeah, I mean, God's a healer. Jehovah Rapha means God our healer. And there's multiple ways that that can happen. And I just, I I guess I just kind of refuse to be a one modality guy. I'm like, look, man, like God can speak through a donkey. (laughs) He did in the Bible. And we're trying to pigeonhole God. Like, I just, I think God does what he wants. And we just need to be obedient. I agree. I think that I think the one of the darkest psyops that we're all subjected to is how mundane reality is. Right? I think that's a lot of people post memes like why did why did our world get so ugly? Why did architecture get so ugly when we used to build these grand cathedrals and buildings? Really, and I think a lot of that is it's to make the world ugly and flat and beige and boring so we lose a sense of the miraculous. Cuz look, think about a major city. You make all these giant buildings you know, towers of steel and glass. They all look basically the same with no adornment. You've turned the lights up, you know, uh, so that no one can see the sky. And then you have zombie apocalypse walking walking around on the ground, yeah. right? Like I'm talking about San Francisco, basically, or Manhattan or Detroit or, what, or Chicago, pick it, right? Seattle. And so anyone wants to look around to see anything more than mundane, flat, boring, stupid reality, they can't even see it. All glory is denied them because we're so hypervisual. We're beings that we're very, we're very. We see, we take in so much with our eyes. Versus, if you just go out in nature and you just look up and you see, you know, the the Milky Way galaxy or a shooting star or you know the 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 Perseid media shower every year or the Halley's comet, which will be coming back around hopefully within our, it'll be around within our lifetime. So, God willing, we're still alive for that. Or you look at a beautiful piece of architecture, the Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona, and you just see glory around you. You see how mundane reality is, and you get a sense of how much bigger God is. But just looking around at your square boxy environment or neighborhood or McMansion suburbs, you're like, you're just not going to see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nature does it for me, man. That That's where I see the glory of God. I'm always... I'm, I'm, always deeply surprised and in awe and it's grown more and more the last decade where I could, I've noticed a distinct, distinct growth and appreciation for the beauty of nature before mm-hmm. it was just like a thing that I would do. Now it's like, I crave it and I, it causes, it provokes wonder 
And I just don't think we have enough wonder and we don't have enough wonder in our life. We also don't have it. We don't, we also have a tough time with mystery. Mm. We want like, we want black and white. We have a hard time with what we don't understand. And so we just give it a label and put it somewhere on a shelf. And I mean, I think, uh, if, if you can be honest with yourself, if you think you got God figured out, you're probably more lost than you think you are mm-hmm. right now. You can, you can understand his attributes and you can't understand his character and you can't understand Jesus was the exact representation of the invisible God. He was, he is, he and the father are one. So yes, you could look at Jesus, but even just even imagine walking with Jesus. He just did. He was just outside of the box all the time. So yeah, man, beauty and wonder and mystery. That's all part of this thing. And if the quicker you can just accept that, that you, you want to be studied and you want to show yourself approved for the work of ministry, I think is what the scriptures say, but you also have to be a child. You also have to maintain wonder and be open to mystery. God is okay destroying your paradigm if you will let him. <laughs> if you let him, he well, maybe maybe he maybe he'll do that if you need it in a in a in a moment when you're going through a breakup and you invite him in and he just destroys your paradigm for the next twenty years of your life. You never know, right? You never know, man. And sometimes he doesn't ask your permission; he just does it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's always, it's always for your benefit. And I imagine there's some consent in there somewhere, right? You can't, doesn't violate, can violate our free will, doesn't violate our free will. Here's the crazy thing, Will. Like I, you and I were getting to know each other. And even if we had known each other 20 years, the the danger is to get familiar with each other. Mm -hmm. And just to get used to each, I'm used to Will's, I'm used to how Will talks. I'm used to Will's gifts. I'm giftings. I'm used to Will's X, Y, and Z. And you get too familiar. And it's not that you, it's, Will, it's not that you got boring. It's that I stopped seeing you with, with open eyes. I stopped actually seeing you, right? Because I, I will never get to the end of my wife. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, we're eternal beings. You can't get to the end of an eternal being. You just thought you did. You lost appreciation, you lost wonder, you lost reverence, you lost honor, you lost respect. That's something you do have to strive to maintain. It's the same with God. If you think God's boring, that's because you're not seeing God accurately. If you think the Bible's boring, it's because you're not, you're not seeing the Bible accurately. If I think my wife is boring, I'm not seeing her right. Right? So, some... <laughs> I was just praying with my wife last night about something and just came out of my mouth. I was like, God, the issue is never with you. <laughs> you don't, you're perfect. It's always down here mm-hmm. where the issue resides. So if my views contorted, that's, it's my, that's me. That's not necessarily the reality. So I don't necessarily know where I'm going with this. Just to say, we, we need to be humbled. And understand uh, God God is not, it's, it's highly likely that we are going to stand before God, right? And be pleasantly surprised at how amazing he is. And we thought we had him pegged. 
I don't think you're gonna we're gonna stand before God and go, man, you just I didn't I I had you pegged pretty good. I think you're gonna be I think you're gonna be over freaking whelmed. Right? And I think we're all and I'll I'll say this and I'll shut up. I think we're all gonna die with a little bit of heresy on our lips. We thought we had it nailed. We thought we had the doctrine down. We thought we we thought we had it. And turns out we missed that that part. We we were way off. And uh, I'm open to that, man. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, man. There's so many. There's so many. So many things I want to jump off of with that. But the first thing I'll say is like, you know, having an exclusivist theological view, you know, is a is a dangerous place to be, right? And I get a lot of. I, I see that a lot in my DMs when when guys are trying to tell me what aspects of my doctrine I'm I'm wrong about particularly because I don't belong to their, their church is usually what it is. And it's like, it's like, um, are you like, are you, you sure you want to go down that? Are you sure you want to go down that road? Because it's, it's related to the slander discussion with your brothers. It's like, how do you know that this thing that you're speaking out against isn't part of God's plan? Now, again, I think that there are ways that we can discern that, but I think that there's a lot of gray area that guys leap to, and you, like you just said, they leap into it because they they can't they can't stand the mystery. Yeah. They 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 got they got to put they got to put God in a box. So they got to put something in a box otherwise they just can't be with the ambiguity. Yeah. And and I think that that inability to be with the ambiguity is what leads to that. But in the same way like you're talking about your wife or any two people in, interacting. Like the second that I think I've got you, the second I put a label on you, you know, the second I think I understand who you are, I've lost sight of you entirely. You're a being in motion. You've got 43 years of life history, you know, and you, you're, we're, we change, our lives change sometimes quite suddenly, but in these long, slow curves, and part of the benefit of friendship is you get to see friends change in good ways and hopefully become more themselves. And if you just decide that I've already decided who you are, like you miss that entire process going on around you all the time. It's it's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to maintain true appreciation, true appreciation. If we did, I think we'd have way more friends. <laughs> I agree. You know, like well, they would last longer because we would fight for them. We would be more intentional and just think that just think we're, we get too used to people and, and it's a shame, man. Like, you know, there's that term rust friends, guys you were friends with back in college that you're still buddies with they live in other states and you don't they don't know your day-to-day and and they're they're the guy that that's the guy you call but you can't really call him because it's he's five states away and you're in a pinch and and these relations it's inevitable people move to different locations but my point is we what we don't fight for it relationally we're going to lose man and it's just probably going to be a slow drift rather than a immediate cutoff but that slow drift matters, man. And I'm still best friends with my best friend. From, uh, we met when I was 14. And he has four daughters as well. It's crazy. They're actually in town from Nashville right now. But uh, we have worked, man. We have worked on the relationship. It has been, we give each other grace. We try to not get too familiar with each other. We don't get jealous when the other one has plans with other friends. Like it's just, it's open-handed, it's gracious, hold each other to a standard, but 
I, I, I refuse to get too familiar with him mm -hmm. in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you brought this up because it, it leads into the subject that I wanted to make sure to tackle um, because the words come up multiple times and that's the notion of honor. You know, I, like I, this, this, this world of men, this world of masculinity talks so much about honor and integrity. Those two words come up a lot, but I don't think a lot of men really know what those things are. And the best definition for honor that I've ever heard is from Alison Armstrong, who understands men and honor very well. She says, honor is doing what's right, even when you don't feel like it. That's how she defines honor. And I think that's a pretty good, I think that's a good, at least a good starting place. I haven't been able to get much beyond that, but I think there's a component of, if you want to remain good friends with a man in your life, treat him honorably and only be friends with men who are honorable. You get two honorable men together, they're rare. The likelihood that two honorable men will see a degrading friendship over time is significantly lower. I can't say it's zero, but it's significantly lower than if you have, than if the men are not honorable. Yeah. Even if the two men live close to each other. I love that, man. I mean, and I think it's a beautiful, it's beautiful because I spent years living under an honor code and it really, it really bonded us in unusual ways. And the honor code at VMI is a cadet would not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate those who do. Mm. It's a very stiff honor code, right? That's mm. you, you, that's, that's, if you want to be part of that tribe, you agree to those terms. Uh, and yes, honor is doing, doing what is right when, when you, even when you don't want to, even when it's inconveniencing you. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll, I'll spare the details, but one of the, one of the things that happens at VMI when you violate the honor code is a drum out process, mm. which is horrific. Uh, I've been, I've seen many, 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 and it, it scars you. But basically when, when someone, someone in the core violates the honor code, uh, they basically take, take that person in front of a jury of their peers, an honor court. They, they basically, uh, it's like a, it's like a court where you go and they, they, they review the evidence. Did you actually cheat on that exam? Did you, did you actually lie about that particular thing? Did you? So if you're found guilty, they put you through the ringer. It's a process. But if you're found guilty, what they do is they, they you know, get your bags and you're out. That's it. But late. So you're oh, off the school. school. You're out. There's no, oh, wow. there's no, there's no like grace. It's like, no, if you violate these three things, you're out. Mm -hmm. And so you've been gone for hours. Nobody knows where you are. Like, is he sick? Is he, a, where is he? And, and then that night around two or 3 a.m., uh, they, you're, you're dead asleep and you hear the sound of loud drums, like war drums mm -hmm. in the middle of the barracks. And the honor court is there in a circle. And this is where it gets brutal. They go, cadet Spencer uh, was found guilty of cheating on this exam on the 9th of May. Uh, got it. They go into the details of the, the findings and then they say, Cadet Spencer placed personal gain above personal honor. Mm. Uh, and then they say, Cadet Spencer's name shall never be mentioned in these walls again. Oof. By that time, you're all long gone and, and now you're 3 a.m. You, you woke up to hear this, and now you know Spencer got drummed out for violating the honor code. 
and it's horrible and everybody hates it. It's disgusting. And yet what it does is it, it causes a tribe that takes it very serious to maintain the honor of being virtuous of not, I don't lie. I don't cut corners you know, I don't steal and I don't. And if I know of someone who's stealing, I don't cover their tracks. Like I confront them and they handle it. Right. So it's, it does, it does provoke a system of honor and everybody's very aware that they don't want to violate their honor. They don't want to violate, they don't want to place personal gain over honor. Honor means everything there. That, that VMI system is not the norm in culture. People don't understand mm-hmm. that concept. But I'll tell you what, that tribe, I've never met a tribe of men that are closer than those men. Uh, and anytime I go back, it's almost, it's almost like a re-traumatization for me. But when I go back, I got to go back a couple months ago. It was, it was a slap in the face as to the distinct difference between that culture and all the other the cultures that, that I've been living in since. And and so I do have an appreciation for it. I, I, I do think the, the drum out process is extreme. But in order to have a high standard like the VMI tribe, you have to have extremes. So I do, I understand the concept. But for me, honor means holding to an unyielding standard. In spite of, even if I could, if I could take this route and have personal gain, I don't place that personal gain over the standard. and. Uh, you know, I think it's worth mentioning we're all human and holding a, a standard of perfection is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you need Christ, by the way. He was perfect because we can't be. Right. But at the same time, in the same breath, if we're going to have a serious tribe, if we're going to have a potent tribe, we have to have standards. We have to have a level of an honor code that we're all in agreement on in order for tribal membership. That's not mean. I think we're too afraid sometimes to be exclusive because we don't want to leave people out. But if you don't have a standard, you don't really have a tribe. You just kind of have a bunch of individuals masquerading as a tribe and they're all doing their own thing. It's all about personal gain. It's You got to come around a a, a freaking standard. And honor, I think, is a great standard. And then we have to, you know, we have to determine, okay, what is honor and what does that look like for our tribe? How do we talk to each other? How do we address each other? Uh, What are our standards? How do we treat women? How do we treat our bodies? How do we treat God? How do we represent God? All those things matter, man. You know? And Yeah. yeah, so I... I want to see a, a revival. I'm going to start a podcast, Honor Revival, uh, <laughs> Revival of Honor, or something like that. That's that's where my heart really is. Absolutely agree. There's a book called "What Is Honor" by Brett McKay that talks about this. He's the guy who started the Art of Manliness, and in that book, he talks about exactly what you're talking about, which is horizontal versus vertical honor. So, uh, so vertical honor is. Is the relationship of you with God in your conscience, you know, up and down, vertical. Horizontal honor is you with your brothers and your your chosen your chosen tribe. Now you can have you can have a collection of brothers that all have horizontal honor with each other, but don't have vertical honor, and that's how you get like the whole like 
hey, watch this. <laughs> you know what I mean? You get guys do pretty stupid, dangerous, and and even wicked things. There's even honor among thieves, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and but I th- I think what we're what we're suffering through is a lot of men that maybe they have they have a high degree of vertical honor, but they have no brothers. They have no horizontal honor because in a, in a Christian context, you can say like, yeah, I don't I don't sin or I watch my you know I, of course I sin, but like. I watch my tongue and, you know, I do everything right by the book, but there's nothing in the Bible about like going to the gym, right? You're not going to see anything in there about standards for diet or dress or conduct. Like it's not, it's not like that, but men need to form tribes of brothers with each other to enforce those human honor standards with each other, with a chosen group of brotherhood, not just with, and this is what I tell a lot of guys out there. Don't let the TV determine your values, your honor values for you. Don't let the TV determine what is right and proper behavior for a man. You need to find a group of brothers in your immediate environment, and the five, six, ten of you determine what that is based on your situation. You hold each other to that standard, and you root it, and you and you make sure that it's rooted in the Bible and God's Word. You'll be golden. But right. a lot of men are really afraid of setting those high honor standards and sticking to them for just that's that reason we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, or that's too hard. It's like yeah, it's supposed to be hard. It's right. supposed to be challenging. You're supposed to want to ride that. Oh, I don't need. I don't need that. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Hate to break it to you, you do need that in your life. I, I, you know, I actually want to read you. So I with the primal crew. So I've got the primal course. Then I've got some men's groups I do. But then I've got the rite of passage, which is mm. the eight week process I put men through down here. But we have a primal creed. And this is kind of like a, it's kind of like a version of an honor. We live, we try to live by these standards and we hold each other to these standards and we all agree on these standards. And if you're going to be part of this primal thing, you're agreeing to these standards, right? So here's a few of them. I don't, I won't necessarily read, read them all, but uh, one is uh, I'm never out of the fight. I thrive in adversity because my training is arduous. Mm-hmm. Another one is I choose honor and integrity over personal gain and recognition. Mm-hmm. Another one is, uh, I will exhibit distinct courage in the face of evil. Where speech is necessary, I will speak. Mm-hmm. Another one is, I aim to be a worthy leader. In the absence of orders, I will take charge and accomplish the mission. Right. I'll read you one more. Uh, <clears throat> my tribe demands that I be physically harder and mentally tougher than my opponents. Yes. Yes to all of that. That's great. So these are, these are creed, this creed I go, I go over with the men and, and we all, it's a standard we hold ourselves to, but I can hold my brothers to, and I, I wrote it. I'm like, you guys have to hold me to this. Hmm? You know, if you see me bending, like you have to hold me to the fire. Like I want to be held accountable. I want to live this out. And it's hard to do it unless I have accountability. Mm-hmm. We all need it. You're, I mean, as leaders, we're supposed to be the best examples of it, but we'll never be perfect. And the idea is that we're still accountable. This idea that I'm the leader of the group, but you can't actually, you can't actually hold me accountable to the standards I set. Yeah, don't join a group like that, right? <laughs> that if you if you if you ever heard of Jack Murphy, um, who who uh, ran the Liminal Order and was revealed to be. Uh, let's just say a super freaky weirdo. He was a big right wing commentator, and he blew up maybe years ago. I was actually in his group, the Liminal Order, in in summer of 2020, um, and I was only in that group for three months. 
uh, and he, he kicked me out because I tried to hold him to the standards that he set <laughs> to the group and he wasn't having it. <laughs> so that's why he and I fell out. So, um, but don't go into groups like that. You know, leaders have to be accountable for the standards they set. They yeah. should exemplify, but they're not above them. Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise, and that's the whole, that's the whole point of Christ. Like, there's much, many, many more than that. But I mean, the idea is like, this is why Christianity is so different from any other human-based religion. It's like the guy actually was the embodiment of all the things that we aspire to beyond reproach, right? And no tribe, no club, no organization will, will have that same, that same dynamic. But you can rest assured knowing that the guy who gives you the teaching is the guy who best embodies them, and that exists nowhere else. For the rest of us humans, you know, we have to make sure that we embody them as best as we can and that we're always still accountable to them. 100%, man. Uh, well, la- last thing I want to say before we wrap up is, Again, just to reiterate, it's important that we have standards. It's important that we strive for those standards. No one's going to reach perfection. Uh, mm-hmm. We have to hold, we, can we hold high standards while also holding grace for each other? And high standards for ourselves, but also holding grace. You know, grace is unmerited favor mm-hmm. to, 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 to receive unmerited grace and favor from God, but also unmerited unmerited grace to be able to overcome things you thought you couldn't overcome. We have to have that for other people too. So I do hold the guys to a high standard. I expect a lot from the guys, especially the primal course and the rite of passage. I, I put them through the ringer on purpose, but I do it alongside with them. And I don't expect these guys to do anything I'm not willing to do or haven't done. And I think... Uh, General Patton said it best. He said, uh, always do everything you command of your men. And he meant he was known for being on the the front lines with his guys. Like he wasn't just touting orders. He was there in the trenches with, with his men. And I think that's the best kind of leadership, right? So it doesn't, doesn't mean, you know, he doesn't mean you don't know how to delegate. It just means, you know, you're in the trenches with guys when, when needed. And, and I, th- I think the grace thing, man, like you lose track of that. You just become a bit of a, a dick, right? You're just that harsh leader who's got high standards, but like people can't relate to that. But if you're just too soft with the grace and you just, just oh, it's fine. And, and you, and the standards aren't very high and, and, and it's just kind of soft and effeminate that that's not good either. Okay. We got to find this middle ground and, and I think um, that's, that's that's probably been the battle with churches for a millennia is the the law and grace, right? How do you how do those two work off of each other? And so, yeah, I think it's probably a a common struggle. But for me, I'm always trying to think about. I, I probably lean heavier towards the, the 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 standard than I do the grace thing, and so I have to really strive that. And my wife really helps with that. I'm like, Hey, do you think this is too harsh? Do you think <laughs> she's corrective in that way? And Hey, baby, you shouldn't have said it that way. And yeah. So that, that's, that's another benefit to having a good woman. <laughs> well, that's the amen to that. And that's the balance between masculine and feminine, between justice and mercy, right? You have, you, you need that, you need that balance because it's possible to be too focused on the justice. It's also possible to be too focused on the mercy. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, 
mother and father, husband and wife, masculine and feminine, keep each other in check as God designed. But when you, you know, you, you disempower men or, or castrate them or, or neuter them, and then you get the, the tyranny of mercy, right? Out of the fear of like, oh, he'll focus too much on justice. So we need to squash all men. We need to be super merciful and have a mommy, mommy culture. Well, you'll, you'll find out what happens when justice comes back and hopefully the justice itself will also be merciful. 100%, man. 100%. Well, this has been absolutely awesome, man. I, I, I'm very blessed by this conversation. Very grateful for, for your stories and for your, and for your experience. And, you know, I had uh, one of my clients go through the primal course uh, last year, I think, oh, and he had nothing right, but yeah. good. Yeah. He had nothing but good things to say about it. So I'm excited to have more men uh, hear about this, especially because uh, men's rites of passage is something that I'm very passionate about that I've been working to figure out, but it's something that no one man can do. Like we all need to be leading rites of passage for the men around us. So I'm glad that you're taking on that mantle and, and, and leading men down that path because it's, it's sorely needed. I've got an open slot for this next one. It's coming up. So if any of you guys want to jump in, tell them to DM me. We'll do. This will be out. This will be out next week. So uh, guys, jump in quickly and see if it's still available. Yeah, man. I'd love to have them. Cool. So where do you want to send men to find out more about you, what you do, the primal course, all of that? Well, so two options. Uh, My website is spelled funny, uh, so you'll have to post it, but it's thrive.co, not .com, Mm -hmm. but .co. And and then also Instagram, uh, primal virtues on Instagram. My email address is real easy. It's hello at thrive.co, but thrive is spelled T-H-R-I-I-V. .co. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Hello at thrive.co is my email. So yeah, uh, that's the best way to reach me, man. Excellent. I will send, uh, I will send men your way. Thank you so much, John. This has been wonderful. Bro, I appreciate your time. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.